Welcome to Happy Times and Places with me, Toby Hayden. Hi, Toby. Uh, it's Simon Guerrier here. I am one of those writers. Sorry, I uh, write for Big Finish and BBC Books and uh, for Doctor Who magazine and stuff. Um, I've chosen for you The Even of the Daleks from 1967, in which the Daleks' diabolical plot involves them running an antique shop. Well, hello. Night has drawn in, and it's time for a classic, a spooky classic. The first missing episode I've done. So without further ado in whatever form you're going to watch it or if you're not hello i'll try to explain the pictures as best i can it's evil of the daleks episode one press play now well how exciting and also terrifying <laughs> i mean i'm quite excited now because evil of the daleks is a bona fide classic uh, it's also seven episodes long and mostly missing. So how enthusiastic am I going to remain tonight? The Evil of the Daleks. I often write um, just Evil of the Daleks, but it is the Evil of the Daleks. Um, I'm, not, I'm not great on exactness of things like that. Uh, the Evil of the Daleks. I know it's horror of Fang Rock, isn't it? It's not the horror of Fang Rock. Um, so, uh, a shot of some stock footage uh, of Gatwick. And then, of course, the TARDIS is being taken away. So this connects with the end of the Faceless Ones. But, of course, because of the way production was done then, this isn't Gatwick. Of course, in uh, in the old days, I like these pictures of, uh, of Trout and Jamie, which I saw quite late in the day. I, are they from the designer? Wherever they're from, they... The, 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 they weren't in the usual run of pictures printed for evil, which were largely Victoria in her dress and Maxtable and uh, Waterfield in the lab and the fighting, um, the, the fighting Daleks and the Emperor Dalek. But that, yeah, so that wasn't filmed at Gatwick because it was part of this production block. But of course, if that was done now, you'd get whichever unit was on the previous story and go, right, we've got a couple of scenes at the beginning. Uh, uh, so uh, you know we'll ca capture those for the next show, but but no, uh, you have to. You, having just been at Catwick Airport not that long previously, you then have to uh, do it. I think it was somewhere near the BBC, wasn't it? Some hangers. Now then, uh, Bob Hall is played by Alec Ross, who um, is only in this episode of Doctor Who. It's his only. But uh, he, he was married at the time to somebody who would go on to be in Doctor Who. He was married to Sheila Hancock. So Bob Hall was married to Helen A. But sadly, uh, Alec Ross um, died not long after this. He died in 71, 72 uh, of esophageal cancer, which has a, a rather sad symmetry for Sheila Hancock because it's also what John Thor died of. Um, I'm not too maudlin, am I? Why do I know this stuff? Why do I know the personal 
tragedies of actors. It's because the actors always spoke to me. I think it's, you know, middle of nowhere. The idea that you could be, you know, a name on a cast list and you could, you could spend your time pretending to be other people. Very appealing. And I imagine that sort of exciting life. Um, and, and, uh, uh, and so reading about Evil of the Daleks uh, when I was younger, you know, the headline news is, of course, you know, Victoria's first story, but mostly, you know, the black and white Daleks fighting at the end. So not much heed was given to episode one, which is very much a setup, isn't it? Because it all takes place in the present day. Well, no, it all takes place a year in the past because it's set on the same day or what is it? 20th of July, 1966. Don't write in. I don't. I think you're all fines. Um, this is utterly. This is all guesswork. 20th of July, 66, which is the day some of the war machines takes place on, which is also the day the end of the faceless ones takes place on, which is what gives Ben and Polly their excuse to leave rather unceremoniously uh, last week. John Bailey, wonderful actor. Uh, he has a very uh, broken quality, doesn't he? Um, and was a broken man the last time he was in Doctor Who because he was he's the commander in episode six of The Sensorites, the sort of Ben Gunn character, the guy who's still fighting the war um, uh, in, in episode six of The Sensorites. Um, uh, and, and, and that character too has a sort of broken dignity about him that that Waterfield also has uh, there's a real sort of sadness behind the eyes and a and a slight readiness in the in the voice that uh, that uh, suggests melancholia to me um, it's a nice mystery isn't it the this this although mr mr perry is also not massively modern you know there's the nice mystery of you know waterfield with his with his uh century old way of conducting himself but but mr perry with his with his uh with his uh uh what they call you know what i mean buttonhole and and manner uh, is is also a, a a bit of a sort of relic um Um, but the, I'm from a time when this, I'm from a time, see, I'm as old as Waterfield. I am from a time when this story was completely missing. Uh, and, and the idea that an episode of this would come back it was, oh God, horrible reading this. When you first got the idea that Doctor Who had missing episodes, they went, I wonder which ones are missing. Oh, what? Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks and the Web of Fear and the Dalek Master Plan. Oh, come on. Um, so of course they were the most missed but then as you get older and I think one likes the idea of being away from the crowd and everyone else goes I love power and evil and you go yeah yeah everyone loves the Dalek stories I'm more interested in the uh, esoteric strangeness of the Macra Terra um, it's the sort of mental games you play with yourself and I think as I got to know evil so I'm interested to see what happens later on is that the middle episodes seem like quite a long fight between Jamie and Kemmel. Uh, and on the soundtrack, you know, you don't know what's going on. So I, I always see those as a bit of a, a lull. Um, 
uh, and and of course the early setup is quite Dalek light. So I, I think I went through a phase of thinking of this as a story that only really kicks in once the Daleks start playing trains and being a bit weird, and then and then uh, you know the the civil war on Scaro, which is the the headline. And I think when you dis when you discover a, a a story like Evil of the Daleks, having seen all those pictures, you assume it's just seven episodes of sort of you know wall to wall Dalek fighting. And then you go, that doesn't actually happen till the end. Why why didn't they just do that more? Um, but it's and it's interesting because you, to, when you go to well we'll we'll see we'll see at the end. Let's talk about the beginning. So. Alec Ross is also the father of the actress Abigail or Mel I think Melanie Thor, who who was adopted by John Thor when Sheila Hancock married John Thor. Um, so she is the sister of Abigail Thor, but actually they have different fathers. Um, and this is Griffith Davis as Kennedy, who I is still about, I think. Um, uh, I've never contact had contact with him, but I, I think a friend of mine has had a signed picture. Uh, he's got a sort of that sort of spivvy quality about him. In fact, I say spiv. Didn't I think they offered the part to James Beck, who was the spiv Walker in Dad's Army, um, and that spivvy sort of modern sort of thuggery is quite. You don't see many characters like that in sixties Doctor Who, or you don't think you do, and they. I don't think I don't think of you doing so. And it gives it a sort of, it gives us a, a modernity and a, and a, a and a sort of realism. Although he's a sort of type, but because he's not space age or historical, and those are the sort of two. At this stage in sixties, black and white Doctor Who, the idea of um, Doctor Who in the modern day is is unusual. Well, hang on, let's think about it. The War Games, the War Machines, is the first in the modern day. Then, faceless ones, although, yes, or a year in the past. And then this, so this is only the 11th episode of Doctor Who. Oh, there's a bit in the chase, I know. I think you'll find, and Planet of Giants, but the headline news there is the is the fact that everybody's shrunk. Okay, but but in terms of a... So, I think give me a pass on Planet of the Planet of Giants. Let's see, I'm, 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 so always there's, it's Planet of Giants, it's not Planet of the Giants. Uh... I I like it's interesting it's this is very much set up but what's really interesting about this is the way that Whitaker sort of writes the doctor piecing the clues together this is a whole episode of the doctor trying to find out what's happened to his tardis um and you sort of plot wise you can sort of dispense with it but we have a mystery. And as the Doctor begins to solve the mystery, he's, we don't know this yet, but he's walking into a trap. So, And that's actually, I think, a really interesting dynamic because, in a way, the Daleks are, are harnessing the fact that he's going to go Ken Kennedy, he's going to follow the matches to the Tricolore, He's the fact that he's intelligence and smart and will work stuff out actually leads him into a trap. So he is hoist 
by his own petard. He is he is trapped by the fact that he's capable of solving the the mystery. Yeah, he's 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 very urgent, isn't he? And very sort of yeah, I like. I I I like what he brings to it because because Mr Perry is so posh and Mr Waterfield is you know obviously he has this this oldy worldy thing about him because oh hang on he's from the past uh, and it is a story that sort of moves from from place to place it's not a static tale at all. But yeah, another handsome. <laughs> That's nice. And <laughs> um, this is a this is what the first seven parter since Marco Polo. Gosh. Uh, so and it, it and it, I mean, it so you can afford this episode of sort of creeping mystery. Uh, you know we're we're sort of in the dark, but also crucially, the doctor uh, is in the dark. Uh, but yeah, this was. Um, I, I, I also I've got to work out what Simon Guerrier might like about this, and he's a he's a writer, so um, I suspect he. I don't think he'll be picking any of the performances I, I, I certainly well, I, I, again this is an episode I would have sort of dismissed you know I've, you know when I was because I actually I don't have the soundtrack to this anymore I'm watching a reconstruction I did have the uh, the BBC audio CD narrated soundtrack and I lent it to somebody and they've not given it me back I was sorting through all of my stuff I've got a few gaps in my collection that you go Where's that gone over the years? And I think I—I I tend to think of myself as guarding my Doctor Who material like a hawk. But these recons, uh, which are from a lovely bunch of people called Loose Cannon, I, I when I when I, uh, I, I ended up on my own, having ended a, re a relationship. It was ended for me. I never ended them myself. And I was at a bit of a loose end and rattling about on my own. And and I discovered these recons, and so I I. You know, I I sent off for them, and and it was great because I and I made my own CD covers. To I, I mean, I didn't do all the artwork. There's places you could get it online, but to match the DVD covers, and, and I bought DVD boxes to make my so that they all matched on the shelf. And uh, and I was that was sort of quite a nice project. It's great how we can be creative, and and also there's something about the archaeology of filling the gaps of Doctor Who, and, and in fact I'd counter. Um, that that's you know that's that's as much of the fun of Doctor Who as the stories is all of the you know the actual experience of discovering it or in this case filling the gaps uh, and I had quite a right old time getting the uh, recons and they have a few extra bits and interviews with them um, but it's it's fun you know you can sit down and watch an approximation of Evil of the Daleks it's amazing really that we you know the amount of effort that's gone into recreating. Uh, something that was shown, you know, just a couple of times. And uh, I started filling my gaps on my shelf and making the covers and, you know, because I was now single. And, uh, and then, then I uh, met somebody else and sort of stopped. So I've still got some, still got some gaps 
<laughs> so um, uh, yeah, really, I need to become uh, uh, appalling to live with and, and uh, <laughs> be left on my own again in order to, to complete the few little gaps on my shelf. Although the uh, animations are now uh, making good that, isn't it extraordinary? I mean, the idea that, I mean, I, I first experienced the whole of Evil of the Daleks with a, with a cassette tape that sounded like it had been recorded underwater in a sock. Actually, it wasn't too, the quality of Evil wasn't too bad. And my goodness, uh, you know, huddled in my bedroom with a tape recorder, listening. Uh, this was better quality than a lot. I mean, Fury from the Deep, what you thought was the heartbeat going all the way through, it was just the tape going... Um, but I like I, I like that, and I would counter that. Or I wouldn't, I'm not countering anything. I would contend that the fact that lots of this Doctor Who is missing actually makes Doctor Who more interesting, which is an awful thing to say. But that great feeling of loss. Um, well, one, it spurned this sort of creativity, but also the fact that we covered something that we haven't got. Uh, you know, it's what archaeology is about, isn't it? And so then picks up. There were no telesnaps when I was younger, so a lot of these photos there was there was no access to. I remember when I first saw a telesnap um, of Power of the Daleks at the, the back end of a book called Doctor Who: The Early Years. Suddenly, like, what pictures taken off the screen? And then suddenly, oh, there's pictures taken off the screen of loads of Doctor Who episodes. And then it's like, wow, we've got telesnaps for everything. Oh, except season three. Oh, so now season three has a special thing because we don't have telesnaps for it, whereas we do have telesnaps for the other thing. And, and then, oh, and then a sensor clip comes back here and then a, and, and that sort of gradual rebuilding. But I, th I think the fact... Missing episodes fascinate me. I think because we imagine them, we piece them together. People do this clever stuff. We have to work things out. I mean, I know that with some of these recons, they... they, they they even use, you know, get screen grabs of the extras. And I mean the extras, the background artists from other things and, and put them on to, to get them as accurate as possible. Now the Tricolor Coffee Bar. Now this is interesting again because you've got music. I remember there being a big worry that should there ever be a commercial release of Evil of the Daleks, the, the missing thing. But we're still worried about those things because um, there's, there's modern music, isn't there? Um there's paperback writing, which I don't, which isn't this. I can't really hear it. Um, but but because it had Beatles music and Beatles music was, um, you know, a definite no-no. It would be too expensive to license. Um, it was kind of, well, if this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, because does Jamie just ask about, is it the chameleons? And then the music fades and and that, that. I, I love the music in this, that it. The, the, the music feels like um, it's on the way to an epic as well. Oh, and that, isn't it? That, that this Dalek theme, but that, 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 that sort of fluting under, underplay as well. Um, the, the, it's like Dudley Simpson has got a memo to say, this story is really important and we're building up to something. Because this is, as I say, this is an episode of investigation, but it has a real atmosphere about it and it has a sense of build which I, I know in this modern age and i i'm not i'm not saying i'm immune to this we're we're itching for the story to begin we're itching for the daleks to be in it uh, but of doctor who fans of old you know even if daleks are in the title they don't appear to the end of episode one that's just gonna happen <laughs> 
Yeah. Da, da, paperback writer. But of course, and I just assumed, oh, they've gone for modern music. But it was years later that, of course, again, because it's the 20th of July, 1966. No, it's music from a year ago. Um, which, again, would mean something slightly different to a to an audience at the time than it does to us, because 66, 67 to us, you know, it's it's the past. Um Coffee bar's a funny thing. Has he got one of those see-through cups? Yeah, I remember I remember those. See-through coffee cups. Oh, God, I mean, how space-age is that? They look terribly, terribly dated now. Not, I think that's what one is. It doesn't matter, to make the point. Because um, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure we had some of those kicking about. Because our house was full of old... We couldn't afford anything new. Our house was full of old stuff. Yeah, see-through coffee cups. They seem so exciting. I was going to say, the, and the idea that you'd go go for a coffee now. People spend a fortune on coffee. I'm not much of a coffee drinker. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I sometimes think of a coffee bar as... There's a bit in Quatermass 2 uh, uh, where Quatermass meets somebody at a... At a at a coffee bar, and the and the waitress bemoans the fact that people are all going to tea bars these days. Fashion, she says. That's all it is. Fashion. Uh, it's one of, it's one of those scenes that they need to give an actor time to get from one set to the other. This is rather put upon waitress. Uh, <laughs> um. So yeah, coffee coffee bars. They're very. I was going to say that. Well, I've just made my point. Because, I mean, gosh, Quatermass 2 is 12 years before this. Isn't that extraordinary? That, again, sort of, you know, black and white sci-fi all sort of rolls into one. But that's 12 years. That's, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's unearthly child to Genesis of the Daleks. Um, ah, Polo neck jumper. Doesn't Jamie wear one of those later? <laughs> was the costume was the costume budget quite small? <laughs> yes, when when Kennedy's out, Jamie give Jamie his jumper. Um, it's only just occurred to me that you know the the time difference between Quatermass two and this. That's extraordinary. Um, and we still haven't seen the Daleks, but. Uh, and he, you know he's been quite a, a a key character, but he's actually here just just pretty much now to to make this discovery. As as we'll discover, he's uh, he's not going to be long for this. I did like that bit in the coffee bar when the when the music went down and the doctor went. Oh, it's something much more much more serious. I I, I only bring that up again because I don't think I I gave it enough attention. Um. Yeah, and so and so, it's not just the Doctor who's investigating. You know, Kennedy is curious. So in a way, the audience are going, okay. Even the baddie doesn't quite know exactly what's going on. But of course, he's got a perfectly plausible motive. He's a he's a he's a crook, isn't he? So he's I think he's gonna. Uh, and of course, um, this is going to start moving in a minute because um, the end of episode one and the beginning of episode two. Are the same. I, mm, I don't know if it was restaged or not. So actually, what happened in episode one might have been marginally different. Uh, but and, and of course, this was the first bit I ever saw of Evil of the Daleks because uh, 
I'd seen the Wheel in Space episode six, which has, which has the clip of, of of Kennedy and the Dalek. Amazing in those days that yeah, you'd watch you'd watch a, a, another episode, and part of the fun of watching it is because it had got a clip of a missing episode in it, uh, and, and then of course an episode turns up that is annoy- annoyingly it's the one that's got the missing clip in it, and here it is. I love that music. It's real, and, and that's great. It's great. And it's and it is a sort of deadly version of the Doctor Who theme, isn't it? A really sort of uh, and that's that's great because the Daleks reflected in the thing, and and then you've got the shot through the through the safe. That's a great piece of music. Yep, we're on our way to an epic. And there we go. Yes, and for years I, I wasn't sure if... Because I think some sources, you know, would say and then Kennedy is exterminated. I was never sure if Kennedy dying was the end of the episode, but it's not. It's it's seeing the Dalek. Uh, who's voiced by Roy Skelton for the first time. Which is odd, because Peter Hawkins is also on board, and he was your main Dalek man. Um, but the sole Dalek here is... Uh, is Roy Skelton. Now, well, I enjoyed that. I hope you did too. Uh, I mean, the sort of episode I would usually sort of dismiss and, you know, pay lip service to because it's a, it's a setup, isn't it? But actually, I think what I'm going to choose about that is I very much liked the doc, the, the conceit of the Doctor solving a series of puzzles. It's very Doctorish. It's it's interesting that we've gone back to the, you know, the show's original script editor. The Doctor is sort of um, detective, s- s- smart, otherworldly detective. But I also like the fact that all that problem solving is doing is leading him further into the web that is to emesh him. Uh, so the Doctor's detective work and the dramatic irony therein god um <laughs> what has simon guerrier chosen he's a very clever fellow so i'm sure he's chosen something better than me uh my best thing about episode one of the evil of the daleks is that even though this is one of the 97 missing episodes of doctor who i think that both the beginning and the end still exist well maybe The ending certainly does. It's repeated at the start of episode 2 and also features in the Wheel of Space episode 6, both of which exist. But according to the camera script, the opening shot of Evil of the Daleks episode 1 is stock footage of Gatwick Airport. And surely they use material shot on location at Gatwick for the Faceless Ones, episode 1 of which exists. So maybe they use some of that. But we don't know. We don't know! Ah! Anyway, that's my best thing about episode 1. Or at least the thing that keeps me awake at night. <laughs> um, well, that's a great point. Oh, I see he's going to be clever, isn't he, Simon? Because that's that's not a thing. That's a sort of thing. I, di- I have asked people to choose their favourite thing. And a couple of people have said, can you clarify what you mean by a thing? And it's like, well, what you think by a thing. <laughs> and that's definitely a thing, if not a thing. Um, that's a great cool yes and i sort of did talk about that didn't i i i actually think charles norton very recently when we were working on the faceless ones 
DVD, uh, you know, the, the animation. He sourced all of the footage, and, it, and, 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 and look, much of the aeroplane footage, if not all, was not shot by the Doc 2 production team for Faceless Ones. It was They were given stock footage, or they got stock footage, some of which was colour, um, and still is colour. So it's highly likely that the, the opening shot of Evil of the Daleks exists. One was a shot was used um, at the beginning of this recon. It was it was moving, and there's no reason to uh, assume that they they got it wrong, or, um, and that it was uh, and that it's yes. So I like that the beginning and the end of Evil of the Daleks episode one. It's what I was talking about about the archaeology. I mean, I thought I'd talk about it because I thought it was interesting. I didn't I, I I didn't think to identify it as as the fab thing about episode one but it is a fab thing about episode one that uh, presumably one day we'll be able to piece all of the missing episodes of Doctor Who together by the little bits of them that we find uh, in little corners of the world ah well look I've got a feeling uh, we're on our way to an epic well welcome viewers and listeners uh, or viewers or listeners you can't be both this is exciting because this is the only these are the only moving pictures I'm going to see all night. It's the existing episode of Evil of the Daleks, episode two. It is available on the Lost in Time DVD collection. That's how I'm watching it. I have it on the select episode menu. I've got to the the page that has uh, the the particular episode on. So all I have to do is press enter or select or whatever, which I am going to do. In three, two, one. And and I did it, but there's a delay. So, <laughs> I mean, good luck to anybody that, uh, that that tries to sync up exactly with with this. But anyway, hello, it's the, it's the opening titles. Um, this was so exciting, this Lost in Time DVD set. I think still remains my favourite set. My favourite DVD of, of the whole collection, just because when I started collecting, uh, oh, that's interesting, Evil of the Daleks, the Evil of the Daleks, episode two by David Whittaker. I'm sure episode one it said Evil of the Daleks by David Whittaker, episode one. I'm sure somebody's got a blog about such things. <laughs> there is definitely a, a blog, there's a website by a chap called Gavin Rymill about which different Daleks are used. I'm, I'm pretty good at spotting which actors are which or whatever, but but his work on uh, which Dalek props get used in which is absolutely fascinating. Um, uh, so I, I direct you to that. It's an amazing thing. Um, and addresses a mystery that I will talk about in a later episode. So I, I knew this clip because it was at the end of Wheel in Space 6, which I'd seen many, many times in terrible quality. Um, but it's like, this is all that we have of Evil of the Daleks. And then... Evil of the Daleks turns up and begins with the bit we know. So, but now this was all new, and this is that this this. I mean, I suppose I have to talk about Derek Martinez this week because this is the only example we have of his direction. But that's a lovely moving shot of the the close up of the antique clock, the, the the then the quick pan to the door, and the Doctor again being this very clever investigatory chap who you know knows to silence a bell with his fingers as they come in um and yes they're they're early for them and there's something about this being at, at night time and of course being surrounded by all this 
ancient uh, ephemera, well, not ancient, but oldie worldy. I've got to think of a better word. Uh, fusty. Uh, Fraser Hines does his best. He, he, he knocks that prop, but he makes sure he's holding onto it before he does. It's very good work, Fraser. You don't want to cost the BBC some china. Um, but of course, this it, it's almost like you know, the TARDISes of the future that we see that are sort of, or, or the idea we have of a, of a TARDIS or of a time traveller who acquires, you know, who gets their stuff from different places. So there's lots of different uh, older artefacts that give you a sort of sense of atmosphere and a sense of time. And I love that, um, the TARDIS in the TV movie, which has all that, where the futuristic is made out of wooden panels and stuff. And all of this, all of this old stuff, and the Doctor whispering in the darkness... Uh, you know, although we're in 1966, 67, um, it's, 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 it's telling us about, the, it's, it's invoking the past. And, and of course, Jamie is right here. Jamie is saying, it's, it's, and this is the sort of thing the meddling monk could do, actually. You go, yeah, well, I thought I'd do this. I'll set up an antique shop. It's exactly what the meddling monk would do. In fact, I'm surprised. <laughs> well, I'm not surprised, but if we did this nowadays, you you know, uh, yeah, the idea that uh, uh, somebody's got this wheeze where they go, oh, I'm selling genuine antiques, but uh, you, you, haven't, you haven't thought to break it or dent it, you know. Um, and that's another clue. It's another clue for the for the for the doctor to actually get wrong, and not the first thing he gets wrong this week. Which I again I rather like. That's interesting. I don't know what having having said I like the fact that the doctor very cleverly pieces together the bits. He also gets things wrong. I'm not sure what David Whittaker's. I suppose it's. I wonder if that's going back to the original concept of the doctor as the the anti-hero, the doctor who you know. I mean, he deliberately um, sabotages the fluid link in the Daleks, doesn't he? But he he, he gets things wrong. He's he's flawed uh, because he makes this he makes that mistake, whereas Jamie is correct. Uh, oh, poor old uh, poor old Edward Waterfield. But yeah, the all this antique stuff gives it atmosphere. And Derek Martinus or Derek Martinus uh, is a brilliant director. He's one of the great Doctor Who. Look at that moving, that, that very fluid camera. Um, and this music, oh, oh it's, it's really going, this is, this is bad news. Um, uh, Martinez's productions always sort of strive for realism. Um, um, well, I've, I was going to say, and the, and the costumes are always very plausible because I was thinking of, you know, Dr. Barkley and his jumper in the 10th planet and, you know, they don't do sort of wacky future. But then I remembered the Ice Warriors where... <laughs> Everyone's dressed like um, uh, uh, they've, they've they've left their clothes out to dry, and Jackson Pollock's wandered in uh, with his paintbrush um, uh, and, and sprayed them plastic as well. But so, but but there's always applause. They're always cast to the hilt. Uh, yeah, ah, Mr. K. Perry, I'm being very clever. You're called Kenneth. No, you were after Kennedy. This guy's called Keith. One of the few Doctor Who Keiths. He says, and then I'll now remember loads because there's Chang in the Wheel in Space. I think he's called Keith Chang. Um, uh, and in a performance that we can't see, which um, probably saves us a lot of trouble. Uh, and Sir Keith Gold 
Christopher Benjamin, who I think was considered for the role of Toby in this. We'll talk about that later. Oh, I'm having a Bakewell tart-flavoured naked bar. I'm not advertised by them or anything. I'm not sponsored by them or anything. We just had a pleasingly almond taste. And that's a shame that that lovely photo of Patrick Troughton has been torn in half. Um, now, Perry is played by Geoffrey Colville. Um, sort of actor, those sorts of parts were uh, uh, sort of parts that Jonathan Cecil would have played. Sort of, hello, hello, ciao, yes, jolly chaps. Um, I think he'd been in Emergency War 10. Well, the, the one thing, main thing I know about Geoffrey Colville is that he was for a while. He went out with an actress called Monica Gray, who was in the, I mentioned it last week, uh, last episode, Quatermass 2. She plays Paula Quatermass in Quatermass 2. I went to her house when I was younger and chatted to her and she told me about that she, she, because she, she dated uh, David Croft, the sitcom writer. Uh, and she said she'd also seen for a while an actor called Jeffrey Colville. So that's what I know about him. <laughs> it's, I mean, ah, I can't promise it's all going to be gold like this, that that man went out with an actress that most of you probably don't know particularly well. But uh, if you like Doctor Who, I would urge you to watch Quatermass if you can. I haven't even mentioned how brilliant Troughton is. I, I sort of have to be careful... Not to take to, because I know the things I take for granted. You don't. He's so good the way he scampers about and the and the way those those eyes are so busy with, um, activity. You know the now I, I've got now that's now why do I know this? That's not that wasn't his hand holding the picture because of course you wouldn't get the camera in. It's a clever piece of direction. The actor oh, the actor holding the picture is Barry Ashton, who comes in later as the policeman. Uh, and he's not, he'd been in Doctor Who in a credited role earlier. He's one of the scientists in the moon base. He gets killed on the moon surface, surface with Victor Pemberton. So he's Victor Pemberton is Jules. So Barry Ashton is Franz. Uh, and he pops up in a couple of fairly thankless roles in the Pertwee era. He plays Proctor, Dr. Cook's assistant in the first couple of episodes of The Time Monster. And he also is a sidekick. He's Ray Lunnan's sidekick. He doesn't really have many lines in uh, in the first couple of episodes of Frontier in Space. Barry Ashton. Uh, all I know about him is that people say he was a lovely Welsh actor. Um, but he's not credited in this, but he does. He doubles up as the policeman. And also, he can say he's played the Doctor because he's the Doctor's... I mean, you only saw his index finger and his thumb. The Doctor's Thumb. <laughs> That'd be a good title for an autobiography. I was the Doctor's Thumb. Um... You didn't look at that, Fraser. Um, Fraser does that twice in this episode because he, um, he he does it later when he asks about uh, the painting of Victor. There's Barry Ashton, the painting of Victoria Waterfield's mum. He goes, "Who's that in the picture?" He hasn't looked at it. He didn't. He didn't look at that there. But he did do that thing where he touched the panel and pulled his hand away, which he also does in Web of Fear, which I always thought there was a mistake in the Web of Fear. Um. And Griffith Davis as Kennedy has just been... He, he died at the beginning of this episode. So he's just spent the whole episode as a corpse. Um, but but it's not a double. And of course, because he had to act his death. 
So, um, actually, that happens a few because Bernard Holly does that, I think, in Tomb of the Sidemen. He dies at the end of episode one, but he's there in episode two, dead. Uh, I think Nick Zaran as Lieutenant Sorba in the Space Pirates. He dies at the end of episode four, I'm guessing, or maybe episode three. Episode four, three or four. Um, three. Um, and I, I remember he has to come back to reenact his death and then his corpse. Um, whereas, of course, uh, yeah, it, it's a different one. But, but that means you'd have to come back for because everything was done, you know, on a, on a weekly basis. Whereas now, you know, you'd get all your stuff done and then you'd be sent home. I love Molly Dawson. Joe Robottom, who has a lovely ticklish voice and a really sweet quality. Um... Molly Dawson, sir. She's very much a sort of character type, but she's so delightful. I think she auditioned to play Victoria, and this was her um, compensation. But I think she's absolutely brilliant. And I think Molly Dawson is companion material. Oh, look at that. Marius Goring. I mean, a star, a movie star. Uh, that I mean, was big news about uh, that that an actor like Goring was in Doctor Who. And I think, you know, he would be able to say, give me a marvellous costume and a fantastic beard and I shall be in Doctor Who. And he's great and he really enjoys himself. But, I mean, an actor of his stature being in Doctor Who lent it massive credibility. Um you know, this is this is. We sometimes, you know, think of think of, uh, you know, the guest stars we get today. Well, there's you know, Goring at, at this time could compete with any of them. He's in a matter of life and death, uh, the Powell Pressburger film, and he's brilliant in it, playing a a French, um, a, a, a French phantom, uh, a, a Pimpernel type. Uh, he was the Scarlet Pimpernel as well, wasn't he? He was. He was the Scarlet Pimpernel on radio and television. Um, and, and in those days, the billing, I think the billing for this in the Radio Times goes starring Patrick Troughton as Doctor Who and Maria Scoring as Theodore Maxtable. I mean, it, you know, um, and, and the companions actually got quite short shrift. I think Patrick Troughton as Doctor Who, Maria Scoring as, and then I think with with John Bailey and Fraser Hines. Um, oh, he's so sad. And look at those, fur that's a worried forehead, isn't it? That poor old... Uh, Poor old Waterfield has his great casting, John Bailey. Yeah, Ma Derek Martinez is brilliant at casting. Um, and that was a picture, wasn't it? The picture on the wall of of, of the, the, the wife, the late wife. That just makes him sad as well. He's got a dead wife. Um, <laughs> is, is, is Deborah Watling painted over, I think, by, by the designer, Chris Thompson. Um, and here she is for the first time. The beautiful and fabulous... Deborah Watling. Uh, God, look at those eyes. She's, uh, she's, um, but she wasn't first round. They cast Denise Buckley, didn't they? Who is very good in a prison episode of The Prisoner called The Dance of the Dead, Dance of the Dead, with Mary Morris as number two. She plays uh, a maid in that, but it's a decent part. And she's great in it. She's really plucky and perky and, uh, 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 obtuse and yeah it's a, it's a really good performance I like Denise Buckley I don't know an awful lot about her but she's great in that prisoner episode and she was cast as Victoria I don't 
I don't know why it fell through, but then Deborah Watling comes in. Oh, I think they saw Gabrielle Drake as well, uh, who I've worked with since, who's a very classy lady. And Lance Travers, who was married to Ronald Pickup. Um, and Joe Robottom and Deborah Watling. This is brilliant. I love this. It's so simple because the Dalek has has no idea that she, the reason she's lost weight is because she's under great emotional distress. Uh, and I think that's really sophisticated and just a really lovely touch, a really intelligent touch and quite harrowing for the character. Uh, and I love the way that when the Daleks look back, there's something really waspish about them. Um, and the fact that it's looking down because she's down and, and the way that it's shot. Um, they're really malevolent. It's just it's funny that that prop can be made to see so malevolent just by the angle of its eye stalk. And the, I love it. I love the looking back. Um, but that's a very clever observation about the Daleks is the Daleks are so literal um, and so harsh that they wouldn't comprehend that she's lost weight, not because she's not because. Well, I've got presumably she's not eating because she's hungry as well, but that, that, that it's actually more complex than just have fuel. You will stay a decent weight or whatever um i love this lab the design work in this story is great i'm sure that spiral staircase is in doctor who again or has been in it already <laughs> i love i love it yes i think i should have a cigar and i think i should have a cutthroat razor to <laughs> do whatever it is that one does with cigars <laughs> that's when you're an actor with a bit of clown. I think I should have a prop in this scene. Uh, you've already got a big beard, funky glasses, and a brilliant costume. Yes, and I shall also have a cigar. Um, I would like a cutlass for episode five. <laughs> I I love the dialogue that uh, uh, Maxtable is given, all that stuff about, you know, when he says... It's just little things like when he says uh, J. Clark Maxwell rather than James Clark Maxwell. It, uh, I don't know why that gives it a, a, a certain class, but it it does. It appeals to me. I'm easily pleased. Because um, I've heard of... Yeah, this is it. By J. Clark Maxwell. I love that. Um, I, I, I'm not a scientist, and I, I, I understand. I remember when this was... There was a wonderful book that came out when I was... a student called the discontinuity guide which was the first sort of it was so loving and yet it took the mickey and i i've since sort of fallen out of love with the taking of the mickey of doctor because I, I i think i think we get lofty about the past at our peril um and i don't like doctor who archly because it's a bit rubbish i like doctor because i think it's absolutely brilliant and the best thing ever and uh, it, it was magical to me as a kid and i don't want to lose that magic and i think we i, I so I get a bit cross when things are a bit, you know, cock a snook. But actually, as a student, that that book was so refreshing because, and it is because it's. I'm not knocking the book because it's actually it's a really good book and it's very loving as well as critical where it needs to be and it's very well written. It's got a funny turn of phrase. But I remember being slightly disappointed with the write up of this because instead of going, oh, it's got the black Daleks and the human factor and the, and the emperor, it sort of says it says it, it papers over its scientific implausibilities with a confident swagger and I didn't I couldn't really get an angle on what they were talking about but actually then when you immerse yourself in the story and all of its stuff with 
you know, a magnetic man and uh, Maxtables after alchemy and, and, and that very uh, intangible idea of, you know, the human factor and the Dalek factor, which are pretty, pretty basic. I love this. Oh, this is, and this, ah, oh, I remember when I first saw this scene and the fact that it's in shocking close up for the doctor and that music and look at his face. This is big stuff. This is, Troughton is selling this a hundred percent but also it's it's really well shot and the music helps and the and the way and the and the way that the dalek speaks as well it's an absolutely brilliant scene i love that and and the fact that the doctor is standing up straight but you can tell he's absolutely terrified and again there's so much going on behind those eyes he's he's fearful but he's standing up to it i love that sort of indignation that he has that foot stamp and indignation that has a childlike quality to it but it's but look at that keen intelligence he gives. I love that scene. <laughs> yeah, water fills. They go. Yeah, I'll tell you this, but no, to honestly, please, sir, <laughs> you, you coward. Ah, uh, yeah, he's he's so good. I love that scene, and I remember when this episode came back. You know, and a lot of Doctor Who can be quite disappointing. Um, it, it doesn't. It doesn't match your imagination. I love this little scamper he does. What have you done with your infernal meddling? That's a great line. And that, that sudden panic, that, oh, and then it's gone. That's clever as well. And, 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 but I, yeah, I love that. Um, and, and I remember that, that scene and me going, no, the, you know, the, this, the, you know, these missing scenes, when they come back, they are not disappointments. That is, I'm, I'm so thrilled we can see that. I love that confrontation between Troughton and the and the Dalek he's so good it's so good you know I think we we the, the Daleks are so familiar to us so ubiquitous that I think we sometimes forget how when they're at their best or when their import is underlined really well they are you, you suddenly remember no these are the these are a big deal uh look at that look at that face shot brilliantly um Oh, yeah, Jamie, you've got a hangover, mate. <laughs> oh, I love the fact that she's so delighted. I also want to know what this drink is that she's got that uh, that makes your hangover disappear. I could have done with that a lot in the, in the olden days. Again, another example of Derek Martinez having a knife custody because Joe Robottom had a very decent career. Um... And you can tell why she's, the camera loves her. She's great. She's she's got such a lovely quality. Um, and this is Bridget Forsyth, a terrific actress. Um, you can tell she's a good actress because my mum always went, she's very good. She is. And if my mum doesn't notice things like that, because she was in whatever happened to the likely lads. So she was a bit of a, a, a household name when I was growing up learning about Doctor Who. And when I first got a cast for Evil of the Daleks in Doctor Who magazine episode guide, and you went, OK, so who's oh, wow. You know, Maris Gorham, John Bailey, you know, big, big acts. But uh, uh, you haven't looked at the portrait, Jamie. Jamie has not looked at the portrait. That's twice in one episode he's gone, what's that, without looking at it. Naughty Fraser. Um, although I adore Fraser Hines. We will we will get on to that later. He is so good. He's worth his weight in gold. Um, uh, but, but that you know, you've got Bridget Forsyth. You've got Windsor Davis about to come on. Uh, 
here he is, Windsor Davis, who, again, when I was discovering Doctor Who, was a household name. He was in his Ain't Our Fop Mum, where he, he, he created a television icon in the, the Sergeant Major, uh, uh, Lofty Singh. Uh, oh, he's also one of the, the Doctor Who actors that's got to number one in the charts, because he got to number one with Whispering Grass. But he was, so reading this, you know, you've got, you've got Bridget Forsyth, Windsor Davis. So th these are actors that have a future but have been spotted, you know, used early by by Derek Martinez, uh, which which adds sort of retrospective class. We wouldn't have known it at the time, but you know, you look back and you go, not only was it a good story at the time, it was a good story in the in in, in the sense that when you look back on it, you go, and also, you know, they got people who'd got a a, a great future. Um, so top marks to Derek Martinez, not only for the way. That it, it looks. I think you're you're helped as well by the fact that it's a, a period setting. Um, I think I think I love the historicals, but understand that they don't float everybody's boat. But uh, historical and sci-fi together is a heady combination. It's that. It's the. I was going to say it's the Yeti on the loo in Tooting Beck, but that's that's present. That was John Pertwee saying. It's always scary if something's you know if something alien appears in the present day but actually that futuristic alien juxtaposition with something ancient and fusty i think is even more beguiling and is is a, is a, is from because the bbc do costume drama so well and the fact that then you've got doctor who doing its science fiction so well together look the, the dalek facing off with a victorian gentleman with a load of whatever that i love i love all his what is that experiment he's doing is that his alchemy experiment i just put lots of things in it but it looks great all that ephemera um like not idle ones oh uh, and 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 Troughton's great because in fact now he's he's not panicking He's very dryly assessing the situation and you sort of know. Oh, he bites his nails though, doesn't he? He's, and in fact, the fact that he's so deadpan about just just underlying how serious it is, it's really clever. Um, now, if you look closely at this Dalek, its eyes aren't flashing because there's only one Dalek this week. That was an empty prop. Um, but I remember being surprised that that was the episode ending because I'm sure, I, 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 I'm sure established wisdom was that the episode ending was when he said, and their greatest pleasure will be in killing me. So that's like a sort of bonus, bonus scene, but it's great. I love the way the sucker goes into the camera. Ah, Peter Hawkins is doing the Dalek voice. There we go. Roy Skelton, you pretender to the throne. Your time is in the future. Um, that isn't that good. Oh. Oh, I love that. Um, just imagine if we could see it all, because that's... Anyway, I will t I, I've got to remember not to talk when it stopped, because I've still got another five episodes to go, and I'm sure there will be gaps that need filling. So, uh, right. What uh, will Simon go... What have I chosen? Oh, my choice is simple. Um that scene, the face-off with the Doctor and the Dalek, I think that's one of the great, the great scenes of of, of Doctor Who. I just think everything about it is is brilliant. Um, I explained why I don't need to repeat myself. What has Simon Guerrier chosen? 
as his best thing of episode two. My best thing about episode two is that we learn the Daleks are running this antique shop. But perhaps the Doctor was already onto them, because this antique shop stuff is set on the 20th of July 1966, the same day as the events of the Faceless Ones and of the final bit of the War Machines. And this is the thing, the War Machines begins with the first Doctor having a pricking sensation in his skin, which he gets, he says, when Daleks are near. So I think he detected the antique shop all that time ago. Uh, and I think that's rather fun. Yeah. <laughs> yes! Did he say July? Did I, I think I said June in episode one? Oh, that's going to get the I think you will find us. Uh, I think that's not bad, considering. <laughs> anyway, um, I knew that. I, I said about that in episode one, didn't I? But I never... And I knew that he says that in in the war machines because he goes I get that, that, that same feeling when the Daleks he actually fluffs the line which is a shame but William Hartnell in the war machines yeah says oh yeah I've got that that prickling sensation from when the when the Daleks are about which of course is just you know sense saying that something's up and it's Wotan and he's built some not very good <laughs> big boxy Dalek things um some slightly less spelt Daleks in the post office from his base in the post office tower um, but a year later <laughs> because of the accident uh, uh, or, or just the, the happenstance that yeah um, episode one of this is 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 on the same day as 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 some of the war machines that actually retroactively makes sense of that I would not have thought to nominate that as one of my favorite things but it is that's typical of Simon Gary he's a really uh, 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 interesting he has an interesting mind and a joy of uh, offbeat things and that's why I'm very pleased he did this and I'm delighted he chose that even though it means that I didn't choose the thing that he chose but that doesn't matter love that good choice Simon <laughs> you've amused me well look um, that's the end of the moving bits of Evil of the Daleks um, but I hope you're still with me uh, for episode three, which will be next. It's episode three, and the Daleks are about to embark on their dastardly plan as we freeze again and watch a reconstructed version of Evil of the Daleks. I am about to press play in three, two, one, now. Um, excellent. Um, so we're back to stills, which is a which is a real shame. Isn't it interesting that episode two, which is the episode that exists, is is it the only one that hasn't got any filmed material in it? And film material is, of course, where the money is, you know. And it's often in episode one to you know get people hooked into the story. Uh, now you see they've gone Evil of the Daleks by David Whittaker episode three, whereas the moving episode went episode two by David Whittaker. Now that may have been an anomaly. Uh, who knows? Uh, now I do know that this cliffhanger was refilmed because they've got an extra Dalek on set. So so uh, you would have had its eyes would have glowed and uh, Gerald Taylor would have done his acting. Um, <coughs> And the thing I didn't say about uh, the 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 Lost in Time set of of, of having uh, those episodes is that of course when I'd collected the, the the single episodes, which I loved doing because it, it again it was like getting a 
a glimpse at part of one of the Dead Sea Scrolls because you couldn't see the rest of the story. And I found that fascinating, that window into the past. But when I first started collecting, this episode did not, uh, episode two of Evil of the Daleks did not exist. Um, so when the Lost in Time set came out, I, I had got Evil 2 by then. And in not bad quality, but, but nonetheless, seeing them on Lost in Time all cleaned up, whereas when, when a lot of those odd episodes, when you got them, bootlegged sorry that was the only way to get them in those days um you know it looked like they were bad photocopies that had been slashed by zorro <laughs> because you know ter terrible quality but again that was part of it actually seeing through the the mer i actually think uh, 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 in much the way that you know the telesnaps coming back for this episode have given us sight of arthur terrell for example um who, who we otherwise didn't have pictures of um uh uh, 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 is that gradually bits bits come back and and, and fill our knowledge H having seen the episodes first in really bad quality i then got an extra boost when i saw them in in really good quality you know um uh, uh, uh and then having listened to murky soundtracks to then see a reconstruction give you know at least it's a it's a sort of dimension it's a sort of feeling of it and then, then i'm sure well you know I, I, for not this episode but other episodes i've since then seen you know animated versions of or or reconstructions that are uh, you know have been done a, a, again and aren't on vhs but are on the on the dvd so each time you know you see something new or something becomes clearer and and i love that it's like you when you're an archaeologist you know you 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 know you paint away don't you gradually uncovering layers and that's a bit like being a uh, a Doctor Who fan is that every time you, you know, every time something new is discovered, our understanding increases, but our experience of it is therefore um, improved. I mean, I, there's, a, there's a number of stories that I thought looked looked much better, having seen them in really tarted up uh, quality. I'm I'm interested in these these episodes though because, as I say, the um, there's a long fight um uh but of course of course it's filmed at it was filmed at grimsdyke house which is the house of gilbert or sullivan Gil i'm gonna say gilbert i think um of, of gilbert and sullivan i always have to i always nearly say gilbert o'sullivan there is a pop star called gilbert o'sullivan saying so i've got matrimony he's and he's still about um but it always confused me as a kid because people would talk about Gilbert and Sullivan and Gilbert O'Sullivan. And Gilbert, <laughs> Gilbert O'Sullivan isn't really called Gilbert O'Sullivan. So he's obviously named himself to go, I will be reminiscent of Gilbert and Sullivan who wrote HMS Pinafore and all the other things. Um, there's a great thing on this recon using actual shots from the house and a, uh, a, a, and a practical Dalek prop to sort of ape uh, what, what we would have seen and from from the evidence of the telesnaps they're not they're not entirely you know inaccurate they've gone into a lot of detail um and actually i think we we sort of lose that in our assessment of evil of the daleks is is how effective this house will have been because filming's a big deal in doctor who and you wouldn't go to film at a location unless it was really going to enhance the production if and if we think about you know a lot of the location filming in Doctor Who, this, that's what this house was, but it was making use of a, a big, beautiful house. And because we don't have any of that in, in episode two, I think that would be something that when it comes back, 
would give it a real extra dimension. Um, but I'm still thinking about Gilbert O'Sullivan. I'm to think, what's like? I could call myself Rogers, Roger O'Hammerstein. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Gilbert O'Sullivan. Anyway, so I've been to Grimsdyke House. There's a very posh restaurant there. I was taken by Steve Roberts from the restoration team, actually, who of whom it's a favourite haunt. And, and said, should we go to Max de Bull's house? And there was a few Doc Two fans there. It was a, it was an evening where a few, and and, and my life prior to my one man show, Moss ate my Doc Two scarf was, I didn't really hang around with Doctor Who fans at all. I was, I was part of fandom very briefly, um, before I went to university, but only for, a, for a short time. But I, I've never really, not really part of organised fandom. Um, it was unusual for me to have Doctor Who fan friends, apart from brief period so so suddenly in later life to be going to maxtable's house with you know people whose names i'd read on the internet steve roberts among them it's, it's become a friend uh it's a very interesting later chapter in my life having not had that that early thing of being a you know i discovered doctor was very much a lone pursuit i lived in the countryside in the middle of nowhere um and i, I got holds of loads of old doctor who magazines courtesy of a friend of a friend he was the one doctor who fan I knew, but he lived in Wolverhampton, which was miles away. But he kindly lent me all of his own Doctor, old Doctor Who magazines, which was a real education. Uh, so again, I pieced together my my Doctor Who knowledge and I soaked it up. And I wasn't one for outsides. So I was inside, you know, I would go, why don't you go outside and get some fresh air? Why would I do that? I've got dusty old Doctor Who magazines. Oh, Kemmel, uh, Sonny Caldinez, bending a metal bar. Um, to prove his strength that would have been uh, uh, just a nifty simple thing to do but that would be impressive and he's got from that shot his muscles great now a friend of mine told me that Kemmel that Sonny Caldinez uh, Kemmel uh, if it wasn't the all-in wrestling in some because Sonny Caldinez was a wrestler um, uh, once actually did wrestle as Kemmel um, because you know wrestlers they, they they assume sort of characters and I don't know if he borrowed his costume or whether he did an approximation of his costume but I'm sure I've not verified this but uh, 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 he's, a, he's a friend I trust um, uh, he wrestled as the mighty Kemmel or whatever so is, is that the first time a, do a, a Doctor Who character has then got a, a, a life <laughs> outside of Doctor Who in another medium so the mighty Kemmel has done the if not the all in wrestling we god we used to watch the wrestling on a Saturday afternoon, like a re religion. Uh, I remember it was a, it, 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 uh, it was like finding out about Santa Claus when somebody told me it was all fixed. Um, for those of you not in the UK, the uh, yeah, well you know wrestling because you have the the WWF and all of that. Ours wasn't quite as glamorous or as as hammy. Well, it was quite hammy. <laughs> so yes. Kem now, Kemmel. Oh, well, Sonny Caldenez, of course, um, has a great history with Doctor Who because he comes back as various ice warriors. And of course, it's only when I did this as a, as a book I did with Rob Shearman called Running Through Corridors that uh, it became apparent that two stories in a row, there's a strong, silent black man, which is a, a sort of cliche and I, and I you know I think those predisposed so to do would see it as an example of uh, you know backwards thinking but you know 
they're both actually good and benign characters and there's no point yelling at history for for living within the moors of its own era i think there's nothing to be achieved from that and and you know the and 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 I and, and I and I know from interviewing actors, and I've I've spoken to an academic that interviewed a lot of black actors from the the fifties and sixties who 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 said they were you know they were treated very well. And although, gosh, in Quater, I found some paper paperwork for Quaterbass in the Pit, and there's a black actor in episode one, Lionel Ngakane, uh, who went on to be a great man of the theatre in South Africa, but was based in the UK. He was South African, based in the UK. And on the paperwork, it says in the dressing room allocation, he has a separate dressing room. And it says, note, um, you know, and it, it uses the word coloured, which you wouldn't use, you know, became out of date very quickly. Coloured actor, give give own dressing room or something like that. And you go, you know, is, is that just, well, that's for various, various reasons, but it's quite sobering when you read that. And, you know, and I, I talked to a modern TV producer friend of mine. I mentioned it and she went, well, that's the producer's fault. The producer's out of order. And I went, the producer was was a was a Jew, an Austrian Jew to escape from Hitler. So, I, I, you know, I think things are a bit more complicated than that. And I think we again, there's a tendency to yell at history to make ourselves look good, which I think is fruitless. Um and it's a it's a not it's a it's a non-spendable currency, uh, I, you know. And there's the in fact, Marius Goring interestingly was described to me once by a, a fellow actor as right of Genghis, uh, and he did in fact he did he lost a lot of money because he was high up in equity and he took equity to court a, a couple of times. But I remember he, he 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 did lose a lot of money because he took equity to court about selling programs to south africa apartheid south africa uh and that was interesting because as a as a kid i mean we didn't have jaffa oranges in our house because the apartheid regime was you know a a, a terrible thing uh and uh um and you know we would not support it as a as a, as a household we by, by via the medium of shopping that's what you did in those days and uh and so equ and equity were of a you know were of a similar view they didn't deal with apartheid south africa it would be seen to be supporting the regime if you sold british television programs featuring actors from british equity to that to south africa whereas goring was of the opinion that um you know politics shouldn't get in the way of equity members making money through foreign sales which is a you know which is a a a, 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 a position to take that is you know you, it's easy to go, oh, well, then he was a racist. Well, or he just thought, or he was a pragmatist. I don't know. I don't agree with him, but I'm also not quick to throw around the epithet racist. And also, well, his wife, Lucy Mannerheim, was, a, was again, a German Jew who'd escaped from Hitler. So people are complicated. Uh, but yes, poor old Marius. To, 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 he, uh, and, and, the, and one of the people who... Um, spoke very much against him was was a black actor from doc two louis mahoney uh who as i record this died not that long ago um and, uh, and i remember reading about it at the time thinking of ponty from planet of evil and theodore maxtable uh, arguing with each other and it gave it a whole doctor frisson for me uh i actually met marius goring he was in a production of ah uh, what was it called a play 
wasn't Dangerous Corner, but it was something like that. And Agatha Christie with Michael Cashman off of Time Flight and EastEnders and now The House of Lords. And uh, Marius Goring and Glyn Edwards, Dave from Minder, who was never in Doctor Who and should have been a good actor. Um, and I met Marius Goring. He had a little dog uh, and I had a crap biro. So I have Marius Goring's autograph in one of my Doctor Who books in, in knackered biro. Uh, and it was before the days of I didn't have a camera. So I couldn't get a snap or anything. But I met Maria Scoring very briefly. Uh, I've never met Joe Robottom. She is the mother of a friend of a friend of mine. And he did try to get me an interview. But apparently she's not she's not keen to talk about her acting career. Which went on for, you know, a lot of actresses dropped off the radar quite early. But she she was in a sitcom, Romany Jones, which with James, with James Beck, uh, who was... Thought of for Toby. Interesting. Um, and was appearing in stuff, you know, well after I knew that she was in Doctor Who. I'd see her pop up in things like The Bill and stuff. And she has got a lovely quality, but do, do, it, some people just don't want to talk about their their, their careers, um, which is totally understandable. It's a shame because I always think of them as the ones that got away, especially if they're known to somebody. Uh, but of course, we think that people's memories of you know four weeks or whatever spent doing a doctor who well you're the, the, you know that that's that's precious information well i mean if you ask me what i did in march 1992 i would have no idea yeah but what about those people you knew then well, yeah maybe vaguely um but i'd still like i'd still like to chat to Joe Robottom because I think Molly Dawson's lovely. Uh, she's a great character and she's great companion material because she's quite feisty. She's ah oh. oh, this is a great scene. Doctor being mean to Jamie. Oh, I I remember there was Doctor Who magazine after they were sort of running out of things to do in Doctor Who archives. They did a a, a series called Nostalgia. It was another way of packaging, looking at a story. But I remember they, they talked... To, nobody talks about nostalgia anymore. Nostalgia ain't what it used to be. I thought it was called nostalgia. This is great. And and and, and we, we know and love Fraser Hines because he's very funny. And he's always game to give a scene a, a bit of extra comic energy. And his rapport with Trout and his comic rapport with Trout and his gold but he's great in this and, and, and he's you know this is we've only just lost Ben and Polly and this is you know them suddenly exploiting this great dynamic they have between these two men uh, and Fraser Hines rises to the occasion um, uh, and the doctor is at his most sort of manipulative and Machiavellian and again it seems like we're in part of an epic you know companions and doctors you know having a big schism doesn't happen that often and look at I mean even that shot of the, do the doctor pointing I don't know if that's from that scene but that's a great telesnap yeah I'm sick to death this is Jamie's pretty fiercely crossed that is a fantastic scene and again it really feels like you're getting to the to the guts of the show but of, but of course the doctor is manipulating him that's what 
that's what's really interesting because Troughton is such a sort of joyful pixie. As you know, he he scampers about and he capers like a like a child, and he's got that sort of innocent glint that he has. But underneath it all is a guy who contemplates terrible things, and you can tell he's seen terrible things. It's a terribly multi-layered performance, and we uh, and we never quite let the doc. If we don't want to, we don't actually quite need to let the Doctor off the hook for how he behaves in this this episode because he is manipulative. Uh, Windsor Davis and Gary Watson as Arthur Terrell. Gary Watson is another actor that's... Well, he's not turned me down. I got his email address. He lives in my hometown, uh, which I discovered when I was doing a play and another actor in the play uh, was instead of staying in a local hotel he was staying with his friend gary watson uh, i said i didn't know gary watson lived here uh, and he said oh yeah yeah because he uh, you know he, re he, re he re he's retired now because he did all those voiceovers because gary watson was a brilliant uh, uh voiceover man in fact i was told a story that he um because a friend of mine has interviewed him for for his edcast thing so he agreed that's that's what really upsets me when somebody agrees to do an interview for somebody else and then my friend gave me his email address and i emailed him and went and, and you live not far from my mum i'd love to come and do nothing <laughs> so it's like ah so it's not that you won't be interviewed you just won't be interviewed by me <laughs> that's happened with a few people i never remember i could never get a letter back uh, uh from norman jones who played Cree song in uh, the abominable snowmen and uh, he's in doctor and the silurians and he's in the mask of mandragora uh and i was like well he's obviously one of those actors that just doesn't reply to people and i tried a couple of different attempts and a couple of different angles and uh and then somebody else i know he got he got a really chatty reply from i was like what did i do wrong um but anyway gary watson is uh alive and well and living not far from my mum but he uh, he basically retired because he does all he did all the voiceovers uh for for the adverts a very a, a really good service and it was in those days where you could earn a lot of money from voiceovers because you got paid properly and you got proper repeats i think this is the only episode that has an exterior shot of the house which i've just seen uh and they did do yeah ex they did do an exterior and i think this is the only one you see it in um and uh and is apparently gary watson's agent just rang him one day and said look Look, Gary, you've got so much co money coming in from your voiceover royalties. You, you can just stop if you want. And so he retired to a lovely market town and I hope is very happy. But I hope also will at some point consider uh, chatting to a local lad about Doctor Who. Um, he's another one that got away. Uh, and he's not... And it's interesting. You don't. There aren't many actors of that period called called Gary. Uh, it's one you sort of associate with, you know, eighties kind of earthy actors. Uh, but I think he's. I think he's posh. I think he's called Garraway or something. And it, so he's he's shortened he's shortened Gary to make himself seem less posh, which seems odd because you, your instinct is to think that actors will flower up their names. Although actually, there's an actor called. Norman Hartley, in, who's in The Invasion and The Time Meddler, who was, I think, Norman Greaterex or something. He had a brilliant name and changed it to Hartley. I think there was, I think there was a period in the 60s when agents said, don't be too posh, son. I suppose because it's, it's the, the kitchen sink and all of that sort of thing, that to be seen as posh was to be seen as not genuine and not earthy enough. So, uh, so actors who, who ran the risk of sounding a bit posh had to suddenly go, no, man, I'm called John. 
I'm not called Baileyle. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> What's Bob short for? Ru Rupertville. <laughs> uh, so this, yeah, this is... I, I, my my image of of these so a lot of these episodes is is of um, indistinct action, but actually there's night filming here, isn't there? Which is gorgeous. And again, I think we miss a lot of that because that's unusual. You don't get many. You get some nice nighttime scenes in studio, and that's very nice to light. But nighttime location filming, I think, would have looked quite special. Um, during this period, although there is nighttime in Macroterra as well, isn't there? But I don't know if that's on location. Um, uh, so again, I think that I think that's oh, so yes, Windsor Davis gets killed. Oh, but I think I think he's back next week as a corpse. <laughs> so <laughs> I think I talked about that in the last episode. But actors, yeah, Kennedy came back as a corpse. Windsor Davis comes back as a corpse. If you get killed close enough to the next. The next episode, uh, you get another episode fee. Um, but yeah, I like the fact that Windsor Davis has been in uh, Doctor Who, and he's one of—he's the only person in the classic series of Doctor Who to be called Toby, and that was quite special to me because Toby is a rubbish name. Uh, I don't mind it so much now, now. I hated it as a kid, but I was relieved I wasn't called Tobias. Because Tobias Vaughan is, of course, called Tobias, but I'm I'm not. I'm just Toby. I'm shortened. I don't really approve of that. I think I think you should give somebody a long name, and then if they if if they're jolly enough to have their name shortened, I don't believe in christening kids Charlie. The name is Charles. If they're if they're jolly enough, your people will call him Charlie. But other but you have to earn that. <laughs> but I was quite glad I was not called Tobias. I don't know how I feel about that now. Uh, anyway, yeah, this is all nice and dark and on film, and they'll have made good use of the house. And I suspect Derek Martinez will have shot it well because he makes, I mean, he makes a virtue of, I mean, even in Galaxy 4 when that came back and it's, you know, there's some scenes that are potential to be quite dull. The way he frames all of his, and in, in, in Galaxy 4, he's basically got four women that look the same, but the way he keeps them in the picture and keeps the picture interesting. So with the freedom that film allows him, I, I think this could have looked quite special in a way that we probably don't appreciate. Uh, and this fight scene that is largely indecipherable to us um from this vantage point um I, I i'm i'm as i'm watching this this is only occurring to me now i'm confident will have been quite quite good oh and that's the episode ending so yeah kemmel uh kemmel there to confront jamie although i've got a feeling isn't isn't that isn't the fight part of next week's episode ending as well i can't remember my as i say my my feeling about these next installments is that they're a bit of a lull so i hope that i am proved wrong because i'm enjoying this i'm, I'm certainly uh things are occurring to me that might not have done as i'm trying to sort of piece the pictures together uh i like that very good I hope you're enjoying Evil of the Daleks. I now have to choose something from this episode. Uh, the night... F I do I do like that, that night filming, that darkness. Uh, I think that looks... 
think that looks really impressive. Um, but I also like the argument between... That's a classic scene, isn't it? The argument... No, I'd be naff to choose night filming, wouldn't it? I think there's night filming next week as well, so I could, I could choose the night filming next week. No, night... What's night? No, I'm going to choose... Uh, that scene between Jamie and the Doctor because I haven't mentioned Fraser Hines and Patrick Troughton enough because that I just take for granted that they're brilliant but also because Fraser is so often the jolly comic stooge although he's you know he's, he does the the action stuff for, very well but that I think that's a more meaty scene for him that he doesn't get uh, uh, as many of so for that it's a real standout scene what has Simon Guerrier chosen he's probably chosen something to do with the fact that he's probably chosen something clever he's weaved a web no doubt my best thing about episode three of the Eve of the daleks is the argument between jamie and the doctor i actually think this is a mirror scene to the celebrated bit in tomb of the cybermen episode three where the doctor talks about his past with victoria in both that and this we're getting an insight into who the doctor really is and more devious, darker character, affected by stuff in his past, uh, a kind of shade to him that we haven't had before. There's an interview with producer Innes Lloyd from about this time, saying that they started Troughton too silly, but are trying to redress that in the programme. And I think Troughton and Fraser Hines really go for it in this scene. I think it's great. Yes. Uh, yes! I got it. I got the same as Simon. And it is. It's an amazing scene. Um, so, yeah, and, it, and and it's it's weird because, the, the yeah, the thing about the tra Troughton being, you know, devious and uh, and a bit of a, you know, is he pulling people's strings? They never, they're never particularly overt with it, but it's, it's definitely there. Great stuff. Ah. <clears throat> Well, let's go back in time through the medium of static electricity and watch episode four of Evil of the Daleks. And I'm going to press play in three, two, one. Let's see, <laughs> which makes no difference because you'll be on a different machine and in a different medium for me. And still it has. It's starting now. Uh, I do like these titles, by the way, that I... Later Doctor Who titles are great. I, I, many a great title sequence in Doctor Who, but I love the sheer abstraction of the Bernard Lodge stuff. You know, it's 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 a suggestion of time and space without it. The idea that it's literal, and then the Doctor's face comes on and, and is torn to pieces, which is whoa. Um, and then the font is quite sort of it's very evil of the Daleks actually. Uh, the, the font is it's uh, like like it's just on the front of a book cover. So you've got sort of an, it's like having an ancient book, um, uh, uh, sort of projected, the, the, the writing on the cover of an ancient book project, projected onto the sort of the, 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 the billowing movement of space and time. Love it. Um, now, we've no idea what this uh, is like. Peter Diamond is the fighter ranger who knew what he was doing, an excellent stuntman who who did work on the star wars movies i think he did the fight for the princess bride which is you've not seen the the sword fight in the princess bride is is one of the greatest movie sword fights of all time witty really well done it's got character in it as well as 
action. It's brilliant. If you've not seen The Princess Bride, I don't know what you're doing here. Go and see The Princess Bride where you watch me talking long to still pictures. Um, uh, and But Doctor Who's, you know, history is littered with fairly bad fights as well. I'm looking at you, the time meddler. Um, but I trust Derek Martinez and I trust Peter, Butter, uh, Peter Butterworth, Peter Diamond. I also trust Sonny Caldness because he was a wrestler, of course. Uh, so, you know, again, it's very difficult. That's why I think, you know, that's partially the reason this... I, 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 I'm sort of a bit muddy about the middle episodes of Evil, which are very important, of course, because Jamie is basically being a guinea pig doctor um, to, to, to distill the human factor what whatever that is i like i like it is a bit david whittakery that wasn't i think there was going to be the in the original story they go back in time and get a caveman called og um which because uh, uh, they needed you know somebody to do stuff to to distill you know es, essence de humanité uh or whatever it is um uh Oh, yeah, there's some outside filming of Kemal hanging down the roof. Um, so, yeah, Og would have uh, Og would have been the key to the human factor, whatever that is. They're, they're very vague about it because it's it's a very vague sort of idea. There's, there's, there's one thing that makes us human. What is it? It's a, it's a factor. It's a thing. Uh, and, and can you narrow it down with that? Well, it's not the thing that makes the Daleks the Daleks. What's that? That's a different sort of factor. Going to go into any more detail? Don't need to. Because I'm going to make it a really good production with really interesting characters uh, and a big Dalek fight at the end. So you'll sort of forget about that bit. Oh, OK. And I, I sort of do. Because but that and, and, and that, the idea of alchemy, the idea that, uh, you know, Maxtable is after alchemy and um, David Whittaker's um, uh, absolute faith in Mercury as being something that can do almost anything uh, makes his approach to science are particularly um very much his own thing uh, but i don't mind it because he's a he's an interesting writer david whittaker he pushes different buttons um and 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 i think that's what the discontinuity guide meant perhaps by what what is it papering over its scientific implausibility with a confident swagger yeah it's a brilliant period production with uh, a, a, a a gloriously interesting guest character um so therefore, the yeah, the the science we can forget about now. We've just seen Victoria's handkerchief on the floor, which is the birth of many a great anecdote from Fraser Hines about picking up uh, things of Victoria's that have been dropped and uh, picking up uh, and replacing them, the prop with a pair of knickers, uh, much to the embarrassment of Deborah Watling. I think there's a similar that anecdote. One size fits all. It can also fit something that happened in. Uh, the web of fear as well um <laughs> and, and and again aren't those much loved anecdotes um part of our part of our experience and the appeal of the show oh camel's got a fez long before in doctor who land fezes were cool uh is it the it's not the only fez in classic doctor who uh, 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 ibrahim namin has one in uh, pyramids of mars I'm not going to list all the fezzes in Doctor Who. I don't know them, uh, but there's those two. Now, interesting. Patrick Troughton is not here this week. 
I think this is the first week he has off since he started. It was that was really interesting when I did my book uh, with Rob Shimon running through corridors and we, we, we you know we watched the series in order a um, couple of episodes a day was Hartnell has quite a lot of time off various various weeks off. Troughton is worked into the ground uh, uh, and he's off he's off this week is the next episode he has off Web of Fear two I think it might be and then he has one off in Wheel in Space has one off in Seeds of Death has the filming off the Dominators but he doesn't get he doesn't get that much time off um, and certainly in this first first year of his worked into the ground um, but in this episode he's in the episode but he has to do some pre-filming so Troughton and the Dalek those scenes will have looked extra swanky because they'll have been shot on film but I and I, I've got to, I don't think Deborah Watling's there either is she is she all on film this week so Fra Fraser Hines was king of king of the studio this week uh, <laughs> I wonder who got dressing room number one Ooh. Uh, so yes, there's there's Windsor Davis back as a corpse for one week only. Uh, fees a fee. Oh. Um, and of course the the, the character dynamics. I, 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 and the and the whole he's very wild eyed, isn't he, uh, Marius Goring? You sense he's. You, you you sense he's enjoying the fact that he he gets to be he he gets to indulge himself as a performer gets to give a vivid performance. I remember when I interviewed uh, Clive Merrison, who's in uh, Tomb of the Cybermen, the story after this, but who is a one wonderful actor and, and I think an actor of great colour and character. But he he said to me, he said, I am you know I I am I am rather a vivid actor, and I like that because I think OTT. Sounds disparaging and and is wrong actually. I I like I like performances with a bit of heft, and I think vivid is a great description. So yes, Marius Goring is vivid, and John Bailey is vivid in a different way. He he gives he's he's he, oh of course because oh and the character dynamics are great here because you've got yeah Maxwell's you know he's prepared to kill uh, his friend. You know, the manipulation that Max Dibble does with Waterfield. Don't we go, well, he's bad, but the Doctor's manipulating Jamie, but for good. Oh, do the ends justify the means? We know what sort of people say that. It's really interesting character dynamics. There's a lot going on amongst the the long scenes between Kemmel and Jamie, which are, of course, again, do not benefit from the fact that we cannot see them because Kemmel doesn't speak. Uh um, I've got a, I've got a lovely picture because um, Sonny did um, did the Ice Warriors commentary. I've got a great picture taken by my friend Simon Harris of Deborah Watling, who's small, Fraser Hines, who's a bit bigger, and then Sonny, who's really tall. And they're all hugging each other. I think Sonny's that way on, and then Fraser's there, and then Debbie's behind. And it's great, and it's this sort of... it's. It's like a lovable version of that um, John Cleese, Ronnie Barker, Ronnie Corbett sketch, but they're all they're all hugging each other. Are those Victoria Waterfield's knickers? Um, <laughs> uh, I think I interrupted myself on a train of thought. I'm sorry about that. Uh, it's very difficult because I have to follow this and talk at the same time. It's 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 the way it works. Um, 
but uh, it wouldn't make for much of a much of a podcast if you're just listening if I didn't say anything uh, so Jamie is talking to Kemmel uh, because yes they're trying to they're trying to find the human factor that's what I was talking about the the dynamics between the characters here you've got you've got this sort of extended family you've got Waterfield and his mate Maxtable his manipulative friend his manipulative rich friend Maxtable who lives at Grimsdyke House uh, and uh, then Ruth and Terrell and Molly who who if if I mean if this was a shorter story if this was a story being told today you, I think you'd still have those characters I think we sometimes um, knock modern who are, or modern telly by going well the reason these stories because they've got seven episodes in which to tell the story means that you can get interesting supplementary characters I think in modern who you get you get you get characters who are in one scene who can move you or Russell T Davis was particularly good at that. Um, uh, or c can give you backstory. I, I think I think there's more economy of storytelling, um, but that's partially to do with technology. These were mounted in a very different way, uh, and I I love this. So I'm not um, I'm not being disparaging of either. I think you can I think you can love both. Again, things are complicated, and liking one thing doesn't mean you dislike another. And I think the characters of Terrell and Ruth and lovely Molly Dawson. Uh, are good additions like uh, the Terrell subplot is a really interesting one it doesn't really you could the story could do without it but uh, he's he's an interesting character um and actually f for when this story moves on as it does in a couple of episodes time I think the fact that you've got to know these supplementary characters so well and, and you know they're with us for you know we meet Molly and Ruth in episode two and we see them for the last time in episode six so they're with us for a month or so um which is a whole story for some characters in you know in, in four parties um it, it feels like we you know we're move because we leave them behind it's like oh god the story's the story another chapter is opening up and it gives it this this sort of feeling of an epic uh, it, it, it also felt like an epic because I remember Patrick Trout in interviews, you know, sometimes said, oh, they should, you know, we, we could, if we did a film, we could remake Evil of the Daleks. I'm sure that was, that was something he banded about. So it was, it was oh God, if that's the one Patrick Troughton really loves, it must be an amazing one. Um, and, it, and it does feel like something special. Uh, oh, And it's 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 nice that uh, Kemal and Jamie have uh, have lots of sort of ad adventuring to do together. Jamie's a very friendly fellow, isn't he? Fraser Hines is great. Um, he uh, he's a great ambassador for Doctor. He's old-fashioned Fraser Hines in that he's all about sort of giving value to the viewer. He's always if. if he, you know, he's always trying to, and that's in his approach to to how he he, he approaches doing, you know, conventions and uh, and 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 commentaries and, and and documentaries and stuff like that. But I think as an actor, he's like that as well. He's 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 never lazy. He's uh, he he's always trying to keep things interesting without without mugging. He's not a, he's not a, he's not a selfish actor. I don't think. 
Uh, I like, I've got a lot of time for Jamie. He's a great, he's one of the great companions. And isn't it amazing to think that he's in, he's in every Trout and Story bar, bar the first one. But of course, because this is, this is season four. We have no complete stories from season four. Isn't that an absolute tragedy? I mean, isn't it weird that the Tenth Planet's missing its last episode? Um, don't trot out the Blue Peter thing. That's not. That's not true. Um, but the uh, yeah, because it was season five was the big loss when I was when I was younger. I mean, we only had. I think there were only one, two, four. Five episodes from season five, I think. No, because they didn't have both the wheel in space. Four episodes from season five, I think, when I was a when I was a time tot. So we actually had more from season four because we got most of the tenth planet, a couple of episodes of the moon base. Uh, we've got one episode of the faceless ones. Then we've got one episode of the underwater menace. So we only marginally got more of season four, but we did have more of season four. Um, Uh, there's a bit of footage from the from the from the house in this recon, and it's that balcony looks great. And I suspect again, Martinez would have made good use of it as a as a set. Um, but yeah, to, it's weird to think, isn't it, that, that this this first year of Troutons we've we've got when there's barely any of it. It's I feel that loss. I really do. I would love to see this. Um, I would get more excited. <laughs> By I get more excited by the idea of a miss. It's what I fantasize about. I don't fantasize about wealth, and I sometimes fantasize about a loft conversion because um, <laughs> I'm getting on a bit now. But I do. I I sometimes when if I'm walking the dog, you know, I go, okay, Toby. So you go to a car boot sale and you've got six episodes. Uh, you find six missing episodes, Doctor. Which ones do you want them to be? Uh, and I think I definitely choose episode seven of this. You've got to see the Dalek Civil War. I mean, it, that's. And they repeated this, of course. This was repeated after the wheel in space and, and repeated as part of the storyline. The Doctor shows... I love the fact that he even goes, I'm going to weave it into a complete story for you because that's my life. I'm, uh, I am I spend my life uh, being in stories. Shall I tell you the story of my holiday? Um, but so it was weaved into the continuity and they refer to it at the beginning of The Dominators as well. So that, that break... Uh, in transmission they repeated evil of the daleks because it's a brilliant story so they knew it was good enough to repeat uh, and i think they destroyed it not long after it was repeated uh i think well we've done it twice that'll do um oh molly dawson yeah so oh so molly's doing a bit of detective work herself yeah give molly a spin-off Yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten about uh, uh, the fact that uh, the repeat of Evil of the Daleks was actually part of Doctor Who continuity. Um. <laughs> yeah, the, this, this this stuff is all... You know, you... You, you, you believe... You believe all these characters. They all have a relationship. I think there's a, there's a bit of a sadness about... 
about this the subplot with with Terrell and poor old Ruth. Oh, who Bridget Forsyth? I worked with. She's another one that got away. These three are all ones that got away. I worked with Bridget Forsyth. So this is seen is is populated by people who I've approached by different means for an interview and failed uh, every single one of them. I worked with Bridget Forsyth. She was lovely. We chatted about Doctor Who. Uh, we had a right old natter. She's a brilliant actress. She. Uh, 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 this was a radio job and she was playing a judge a judge and her voice and her diction has so much authority she's a real class act and she lives she lives not far from me so that's it she, she lives not far from here she said she'd be up for an interview uh but instead of because i'm shy i didn't go give us your number i said well i'll just i'll just drop your agent a line and i dropped it and i and that was a foolish thing to do because i never have luck with agents because my project so i've got no you know i've got no money to pay people i don't commercially exploit i'm just a, i'm just an acquisitive geek i just want to gather the people and the stories so i buy them lunch you know but agents don't get 10% of lunch you know you don't you don't buy somebody lunch and then send the agent half a prawn cocktail <laughs> so there's nothing in it for them uh, and she was filming she was filming the new open all hours and he just went oh, she's doing that and i went oh yeah and I, and i took it as a sort of brush off and if i was a a dogged sort of individual i'd have perhaps pushed that and i didn't and i regret that now because i had an in so there's something about evil of the daleks is trying to avoid me <laughs> oh god oh yes maxtable don't have that's a great great shot of of maxtable and again you know a, a, a really hefty actor uh, 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 being being dominated by the, the Daleks are quite scary when they're small. I know I like the big modern tanky Daleks, but but actually there's something the sort of little little squat Daleks, uh, especially when they tower. Well, they don't tower over things, but when they leer over people, uh, again there's a sort of malevolence about them, uh, and. Of course, Maxtable is a fool. This this man after the, oh, and he's going mad. Now that's a worrying sign in a Doctor Who villain, especially in an actor who who's enjoying himself. But I'd forgotten Maxtable's a bit of an idiot because he yeah he wants he wants the secret of alchemy. Come on, mate. Um, uh, and and he misjudges the Daleks, doesn't he? Doesn't he say they're my colleagues? No, mate. Um, Although I'm always wary of villains double-crossing villains as well because I think it lets your hero off the hook. I always used to get annoyed in 24 when, you know, they'd get, they'd get a new actor in to play, you know, the next level of baddie. So the previous baddie that you'd invested in and quite liked, who's also played by a good actor, would then get killed by that baddie. Uh, and you go, oh, that's... Ch so the, the, the hero hasn't even been responsible for the dispatching of the last threat. Uh, and, and, yeah, I always... Uh, uh, I always find it a little boring when, 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 yeah, when the when the baddies sort of dispose of each other. I'm not saying that's happening here, but it the, there is that in the dynamic of of Maxtable isn't necessarily going to be re defeated by the Doctor, although he is outwitted by the Doctor. But he's 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 also partially defeated by the Daleks. Although actually, I'm talking myself out of this because he's actually defeated by his own arrogance because he thinks because he's a man of property and he's a man of money and status he can he can he can make a deal with the devil which is a story as old as time uh 
and his folly is that ambition and arrogance. Uh, and this is nice. This is a nice scene for Bridget Forsyth, isn't it? That she again is a is a pretty supporting character. Oh, Mad Eyes. Yes, well, we all know that I love the underwater menace when the doctor diagnoses Professor Zaroff as being mad. How? I looked at his eyes. He's got mad, starey eyes. So that was that was that was as psychological as you got in the 1960s. I, th I think he's mad, so I, he's a bit starey. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that father-daughter stuff is, is, is nice. It's nice extra texture. And Bridget Forsyth is very good. Um, and gets a you know decent crack of the. In those days, all, most parts were worth turning up for. Even Bob Hall in episode one, he gets a decent amount to do. And Kennedy, you know, uh, act, act, acting actors in those days, you know, even playing sort of relatively supporting parts, you you got a decent crack of the whip. Um, we've got no idea what this is like, have we? But. Um, uh, Kemmel and Jamie fighting the Dalek and I, I believe isn't there a scene in this this is what I learned from that brilliant website there's a oh there's a there's a high am, high camera shot filming down so you see that, that that's what the split level of the of the location will have afforded um, a, a good director like Martinez and the film so although this I think is totally mysterious to us I'm 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 optimistic it will have looked it will have looked good, but I think there's a they 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 kill a Dalek, don't they? They 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 blow up a Dalek. Does it get pushed off? Does it fall down a level? Uh, and this website of Gavin Rymel's that I told you about on a previous episode points out that the prop that they use to be the broken Dalek is the bashed-in Dalek that's at the end of Power of the Daleks because they'd got a broken Dalek. Like, well, that might come in useful. Uh, some other time and lo and behold it does and and gavin has, has sort of managed to compare the two and go yes you can you can tell that it's the same thing i love that sort of scholarship in an area that isn't my area you know um, props props and, uh, uh, and costumes and things aren't my speciality but there's a, just been a design special from doc 2 magazine where phil newman who's a, a another sort of dogged uh, doctor researcher his thing is sets and he contacted all the designers and we've got we've only got interviews with them because of phil's work in the early days and and i love all that and how people sort of uh, you know share their their spoils and 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 for me i mean you know contacts as well you know phil has always if i've needed a number always given me a number um because i think we're all you know we're all on the same side but we don't you know we, do, we don't all hang about <laughs> together there's not a sort of cabal of um uh, uh, Doctor Who uh, fans who meet in secret and, and plot, um, but uh, but but there is you know a, sh a sharing of information uh, and helpfulness. That's great. That's great. The music there again, the Dalek. So okay, well, I mean. Yeah, we got through that. I was I was having to do a lot of guessing and a lot of talking. I'm so sorry, um, but that's because there was a lot of action in that, which you know may well have made it one of the most exciting episodes of Doctor Who ever. Uh, it's difficult to tell when you've only got pictures. Uh, so what am I going to choose? I might have to. Um... Oh, design Chris Thompson, the designer is. Uh... Oh, Dalek stories created by Terry Nation. I remember that Terry Nation was cross uh, because he's not credited on episode one. So I think there's a voiceover on episode two. You know, the the the, 
the announcer does a voice did a voiceover on episode two, having him not been credited on episode one, and then he's credited on episodes three onwards as Daleks created by. If he wasn't cross, his agent was. Um, that's what agents are for. Um, so that's why he gets a, a, a credit. Um, but Chris Thompson, the designer, who worked as a design assistant on some of the Hartnells. Uh, is he on design assistant on uh, Mission to the Unknown, I think? I don't know. Um, uh, don't write in. Um, but he's certainly a design assistant. On so, and this is his only credit on Doctor Who, and I think the design work on Evil is great. So, because I'm tired, and because there's not a lot to get my to get to grips, is a lot of that is guesswork. So, I'm going to say, you know, for points overall, Chris Thompson's design work is glorious. He's great at the period stuff. That stuff in in uh, uh, the the futuristic stuff also holds its own and gets particularly good, I think, with the Dalek City and all of that sort of stuff. So, I think for honors. Uh, shared across the across the the story chris thompson's design work is going to be my favorite thing for episode four what has simon chosen my best thing about episode four is there's a huge chunk of this episode where we have no idea or very little idea about what is actually going on. <laughs> the fight scene at the start of the episode lasts just over four minutes with barely a single line of dialogue. The camera script hardly tells us anything of what's going on. The telly snaps just give us a few clues. Reminiscences of the actors in it and the crew who worked on it don't really talk us through the beats of the fight scene. Um, so it's constructed, reconstructed in the audio versions and the, the, the audio books and whatever, really from guesswork. And I find that fascinating and quite fun. <laughs> right. So the thing I was complaining about, I said he was clever. The thing I was complaining about, the fact that we can't really see it, he's made into a virtue. And he's quite right. Um, you know, that is part of the... The fun of it, the guesswork, the fact that we might one day get a clue or a clip might turn up or, you know, but, but it means there's still something tantalising, something to discover. Um, well done for turning that into a virtue, Simon. He's a clever fella. I, I still make no... I will, it is slightly cheated because so much of that was actually at the house. It's not really a very Chris Thompson-y episode, but I played the design joker. I don't care. Uh, I, I don't think as uh, outside the box as Simon. Um, great. Right, well, welcome back, listeners and viewers, depending on which you are. If you're a viewer, you've noticed I've I've raised the camera a bit to uh, so so that the camera's looking down on me like a squat malevolent Dalek. Uh, <laughs> listeners, you'll just have to imagine that. Um, you can just see slightly more of my the top of my head, my balding head. Um, so we're going to watch episode five of Evil of the Daleks. Still plenty left in this story. Uh, so press play now. Um, interesting, I, ch I chose for episode four my favourite thing. I cheated a little bit. I do feel a bit bad about that. Um, it will probably bug me forever. <laughs> um, Chris Thompson, the designer. Of course, I had a chance to interview him, but he lives miles away from where I am. And I was a bit busy and a bit tired. Uh, uh, and um, 
and so I didn't do it. So my friends Phil, Phil Newman and John Kelly did, but they, they invited me along. Phil's a better interviewer for a designer anyway. Um, I'm, I'm pretty good with actors. I could go, what was it like working with um, uh, Moultrie Kelsall in uh, the Anglian Shanklin Empire in 1947 or whatever? Whereas uh, with sets, it's just like, what, so what, what, how, what, how did you do that wallpaper? Um, so Phil, Phil is a professional designer. Um, but I had a chance to interview the fantastic designer of this story, his only credit on Doctor Who. Uh, and, I, and I didn't. So as well as half of the cast that got away, the designers also got away from me as well. Um, I have interviewed Roger Bunce, who's one of the studio cameramen from this. Um, and Tim Coombe, who's the assistant. Ah, yes, that's the bit with the, the Dalek casing from Power of the Daleks that I mentioned last week. You can see it in the telesnap. How funny. Ha, 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 ha. And I wonder that will have been a nice moment with the Dalek falling, falling uh, off the balcony. Um, and I think did they have to make a, a special slim Dalek in order to fit through to get onto the balcony? There's lots of interesting Dalek facts. Uh, again, uh, like Phil is is uh, better equipped to talk about sets. Gavin Rymill is much better equipped to tell you everything you need to know about the Daleks. Check out his website. Uh, he's not sponsored me. I've mentioned him loads of times, <laughs> but I do like his work. I like, I like, I like the the scholarship and industry that goes into the um, piecing the history of Doctor Who together. Deborah Watling, uh, I always think of as my sort of Doctor Who twin, because I was delighted there was an interview with her in Doctor Who magazine, and it opened saying Deborah Watling was born in. Loughton in Essex, which is spelled L-O-U-G-H-T-O-N. Well, I spent my childhood and my, my family still live in the same house in, in uh, Loughton, spelt L-O-U-G-H-T-O-N, in Shropshire. Uh, and she was born on the 2nd of January 1948. I was born on the 2nd of January 1974. So, so Deborah Watling is my Doctor Who twin. And nobody's born on the 2nd of January. It's a terrible birthday. I think David Bailey, the photographer maybe Tia Carrere from Wayne's World but no most people because most people don't even bother to get out of bed on the 2nd of January it's the worst birthday in the history of time everyone waits till the next day or gets it out of the way the day before um Charlton's very cunning here with uh with Arthur Terrell isn't he and Oh, yes, there's, there's swords on the wall there. I think there's a sword. For, oh, no, because there's a course, isn't it? He, he's magnetic. Uh, I can't remember the details. I'm talking through it. Uh, I'm sure. Our, doesn't he hold a sword and something magnetizes to it? And that shows that he's 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 all Dalek-y. He's been he's been Dalekerized because he's a magnetic man. That's quite David Whittaker science, I, I, um, <laughs> which I rather like. Um, oh, and he doesn't eat or drink anything. He doesn't eat or drink anything, and he's magnetic, so he's under the thrall of the Daleks, uh, which means he has he has a terrible time of it this episode, but in which which means which is which is cause, and that has repercussions for for Ruth and for him, and you know they're they he's he's going to suffer after this. He's going to convalesce uh, 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 as a result of what he's been through in this story, and I think that's quite. 
that gives it a scope and a life outside the these particular adventures, you know. Uh, five episodes in. And, oh, and John Bailey, here he is as Edward Waterfield, the saddest man in Doctor Who. Uh, I, I was, oh, hang on. I, I am a professor. I'm not a student of human nature. I'm a professor of a far wider academy of which human nature is only a part. That was in the book Doctor Who. I will come back to John Bailey, don't worry. Doctor Who, a celebration, which is the moment or which is the gift that I was given that I think transformed me from a kid who liked Doctor Who into a Doctor Who fan. It was so packed full of really interesting things. And I remember the family sort of passing it around at Christmas going, oh, it started the day after John F. Kennedy died. Oh, do you know he's never actually been called Doctor Who? Blah, 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 blah. Um, although even that does a little footnote, so apart from the war machines. Um, oh, poor old Arthur Terrell's got the Dalek voice in his head. I love that. Yeah, it's really nice. That's a character going through the ringer. Um, but Doctor Who is Celebration. Um, had had colour pictures in the middle and it had one of each doctor up to that point with a with a quote. So William Hartnell, it was a picture of him and, and the quote was, I'm a citizen of the universe and a gentleman to boot. With Troughton, it was that one from Evil. I think for Pertwee, it was from Day of the Daleks. Sea Devils going, uh, was it the Sea Devils? Uh, I remember saying to old Napoleon Boney, I said, although I read that as I remember saying to old Napoleon Boney, I said, and of course it doesn't because I, I misinterpreted what the, the speech marks were. Tom Baker, did he have I'm a Time Lord, I Walk in Eternity? I think so, a picture of him surrounded by sort of refracting light uh, and a sort of kaleidoscopic light uh, and Davison on the floor with broken bits around him. And I think his quote was even a broken clock tells the right time twice a day, which I don't think is one of his lines, is it? Um, maybe it is. Um, uh, but those were the quotes under each doctor in the middle of Doctor Who's celebration. So I'm not a student of human nature. I'm a professor of a far wider academy, which human nature is only a part. I didn't really know what that meant. Uh, this was 1983, so I was nine. I certainly didn't know what I'm a citizen of the universe and a gentleman to boot means. I, did, I was going, what? You, you're allowed to kick him? What does, what does that mean? What does that... Uh, so, so, yeah, so I've spent a lot of time being baffled by words and idioms in Doctor Who that I've only then come to understand later. That's an excellent shot of Molly Dawson being hypnotised. Uh, <laughs> um. Oh, another story about Marius Goring here hypnotising lovely Joe Robottom as... as, as fabulous maid Molly Dawson uh, is I think I think maybe Mark Gatiss told me this I'm not and I'm not name dropping I'm, I'm I met him about four times but um, uh, it's just to quote my sources somebody told a story of Maria Scoring used to walk around in a three-piece suit with a tie and a pocket square and I think the story had came up because I like to sport a pocket square when I'm out and about because I was delighted when I did a DVD commentary for the Android Invasion, which is an entirely audio medium, and they don't film anything on the day. And Milton Johns, the wonderful actor who, from the Enemy of the World, Android Invasion, Invasion of Time, turned up in a three-piece suit with a tie and matching pocket square. And I loved that so much 
Like I thought, I like wearing a tie. No, I, I didn't start wearing a tie till a lot later, but I, I used to like stuffing stuffing something into my jacket pocket just to give it a bit of flair. Uh, not quite as, I didn't look quite as formal as uh, as Milton John's, so I wasn't, wasn't cosplaying as Milton John's, but I was certainly influenced. Um, uh, and anyway, apparently, yeah, Marius Goring used to go around dressed in a very smart three-piece suit with tie and pocket square, but with, um, with trainers on. Uh, apparently exquisite, very clean white trainers because, you know, he was in his late 70s, early 80s and, you know, it needed comfort on the feet, you know. And he and, and I, I was given a line and I can't remember what it was where he said something about, you know, yeah, you look good, but you've got to always, always go for comfort downstairs sort of thing. So I, I love that idea that even when you have to wear trainers because you're you're a bit sort of gnarled and old, you still, you know, try and have a try and have a few... You know, a few standards. I like a. I do like a standard. Um, although I'm, I'm being honest with this because I, I normally dress. I try and dress, as I say, quite, uh, quite well when I, I go out. So the fact that I've let you into my house, very tempted to get changed for, for these. Um, but you're at my house. I'm loafing about. You, you, uh, I'm, you, you're, you're in what I, you're in. You see me as I am, and you're most welcome. Um, if you're so long as you're nice, just I've just brought you around to talk about Doctor Who. Uh, I think it's nice. We're in, I record this in a time of pestilence, uh, uh, and I see the internet so squabbly and so divisive, even in the worlds of Doctor Who fandom. And I see a lot of Doctor Who fans getting cross with each other. Then the country at large getting cross with each other. The only way to fight the dark is to try and shine a bit of light. And the only light I have is that I'm very enthusiastic about Doctor Who and I can talk about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I'm talking about it to you. And I know that some people are probably out there, you know, t twiddling thumbs. Uh, I, actually, I was going to say... Uh, Maybe short of Doctor Who material. You're not short of Doctor Who material. There's plenty of Doctor Who podcasts. So thank you for choosing this one. Or thank you for choosing to watch along. Am I on, you're on my sofa or am I on your sofa? Anyway, hello. Um, I like this dynamic between Maxwell and Terrell. I mean, it would all go, um, I think, in a modern story. Or it would be dealt with in a couple of scenes. But... Um, I think uh, he's a good actor, good character. Oh, that's it. Yeah, that was the point. Um, Christopher Benjamin was considered for Toby, I mentioned a few episodes ago. I, I have a little, I pick a little bit of a fight with the way that Doctor Who's history is written sometimes because they, you know, in production files, they find sort of actors' names scrawled next to parts. And it's always written up as, for example, with this, uh, Barry Ingham lost out to the role of Arthur Terrell to Gary Watson. Uh, I don't know that he did. Barry Ingham may well have been considered, but Barry Ingham was a, a big actor, uh, associate artist of the Royal Shakespeare Company. He's Paris in The Mythmakers. He's in the film of Doctor Who and the Daleks. He may have been considered or, or thought of very fleetingly for the role of uh, Arthur Terrell. It doesn't mean they offered it to him, uh, or it doesn't mean that they thought of him and then went, nah, not him, let's get Gary Watson. They might have offered it to him. It might not have even got to him. His agent might have gone, no way, it's not a big enough part. So uh, 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 so, so when they say, you know, so-and-so lost out to so-and-so, there are other actors considered for other parts. I think Lee Montague, fine actor, was uh, 
was considered for Maxtable. That doesn't mean he lost out to marry a scoring or that they're comparable because I've, you know, I've been involved in casting a stuff. You, you write loads and loads of names. It doesn't mean uh, they're in competition with each other or one person is, is offered it and another isn't or whatever, all sorts of different factors. And sometimes it's just speculation. So it's just a little hill I want to die on in the way that sometimes, uh, and, and I think it goes on because people then go on to IMDB and go, uh, so-and-so uh, won the part over so-and-so. Not not necessarily. Some of the others may have been offered it and turned it down. Uh, I thought that was really important as I started saying it. I've, I've, I've tailed off a bit and realised that some of the hills I'm prepared to die on are pointless deaths. And they're only things that worry me. But it's amazing because that's been up in my head for so many years as a thing that's slightly irritated me when I've read it. This is my chance to say it out loud. And then you go, oh, actually, it doesn't really matter. But... That's a lesson for life. It's because I, I think, I think sometimes we bottle things up and then we get furious and we type them on the internet and we, we expunge our things that annoy us. Um, and actually, then we, when you say them out loud, um, it, uh, it takes the power out of them and actually makes you realise that some of them aren't that important. That's what I've found anyway. <laughs> now, John Bailey, I promised to come back to. In the Dennis Potter play... Vote, vote, vote for Nigel Barton. There's two. The stand-up Nigel Barton, which I think is the first one. Vote, vote, vote for Nigel Barton is the second one. And his... Nigel Barton is an aspiring MP played by Keith Barron. Uh, and his sort of election, what they called manager, sponsor. There is a word and I, I forget it now because it's one o'clock in the morning and I'm on my fifth episode of non-existent Doctor Who in a row. Um, agent? It's not just agent, is it? Anyway, whatever. His election guy is, I think, called Jack May, which is the name of an actor. It's the actor who plays General Hermack in The Space Pirates. Is he called Jack May, the character? Anyway, uh, is played by John Bailey. And it's a very different performance to Edward Waterfield. And it's a really good performance. And he gets some great moments in it. Uh, and it's 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 one of the it's one of the he's one of the great Dennis Potter characters in a really important uh, play. So if you want to see another side of John Bailey, check out "Vote, Vote, Vote for Nigel Barton." God, I haven't seen that in years. There's so much lovely archive telly to remind oneself of, and there's good telly today. I mean, I'm not a You know, sometimes when I sort of talk about how, how these stories have time to breathe and the characters have time to do something, I'm not, I'm not knocking modern telly. I think modern telly has, has so much that's good about it. But I have to say I am very much drawn to... Black and white is so good as well, isn't it? Black and white is so atmospheric. Um, and I think, again, but that's partially is because there's something spooky about watching the ancient... And it's not so much a case with, with this one, but you know, a lot of what of old Doctor we watch, we're you know, we're entertained by, by, the, the dead. You know, it's it's a, it's our, our our archives are populated by ghosts, and I th and I think that in a way is quite sort of spooky and profound. Seeing seeing something that when they were doing it, you know, they were there and alive and as present, and I could see them feel themselves as much as I can now. And now they're, you know, now they're gone. Um, 
I, I, yeah, I find that strangely moving. I remember Matthew Waterhouse doing an interview in Doc Two magazine and talking about how if, when you watched a silent film, you know that even you know that extra in the background was 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 now dead, but to them then it was you know life was present and and real and important. And I I do think I think there is something about it's, it's a bit it's a trick. It's a, it's a bit, it's a bit like the camera capturing the soul, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a, it's a bit of that. Um, the idea that we're, you know, we, that, that well, everything here is, is sort of preserved f forever. I mean, or, or not, because I'm watching a missing episode. But that was, that was, that was the principle. Um, now we've got a sword fight, which I suspect would have been all right because one, Peter Diamond, and two. Uh, Gary Watson was around this time and he just done it was a musketeer now there's a three musketeers there's a three musketeers that has that's very hooey I remember finding it in the radio times uh, from around this time it's, uh, I think it's Paul Whitson Jones as Porthos of course Paul Whitson Jones from the from the mutants and the smugglers always played slightly poor Porthos is always a bit larger isn't he um, is it is Jeremy Brett D'Artagnan? But I've got a. Why am I thinking of Lawrence Payne as D'Artagnan? Jeremy Brett has not done a Doctor Who, but he was touted as a Doctor Who in the eighties. People wanted him to play Doctor Who in the eighties. Um, but it's a Doctor Who Sherlock thing going on. Uh, Gary Watson. What about oh, but Jeremy. Jeremy. Oh, hang on. No, it's Brian Blessed. What about Brian Blessed, Gary Watson, Jeremy Young, Jeremy Brett. Jeremy Brett as D'Artagnan. And then there's an earlier one that's got Paul Whitson Jones that has Lawrence Payne as D'Artagnan. Lawrence Payne lost his eye in a sword fight uh, in. Sexton Blake. That's Lawrence Payne from The Two Doctors and The Leisure Hive and The Gunfighters. Uh, and Roger Delgado was in that and somebody else. And that was an earlier one. But I think the 60s one is Blessed. Jeremy Young from Unearthly Child, Mission to the Unknown. Gary Watson. So he'll have been a good sort of... I wonder why, that's why they thought of him because I think it was 66. I think it was around this time. Gary Watson could sword fight. Oh, oh, and he, and the doctor rescues him, and, and there's something quite urgent about that, isn't there? Telling Ruth, you know, get the hell out of here because things are about to get really heavy. And it, yeah, it's episode five. We ain't finishing. We've got, we've got. There's, there's more to happen. Oh, and it's nice that Terrell gets his, gets his sort of humanity back. I wonder though if he spends his old age going. I used to be able to pick. I used to be able to magnetise metal. <laughs> Can't do it anymore. Yeah. Um, so yes. Anyway, two, three musketeers, six musketeers, eight musketeers, because D'Artagnan's a musketeer. But yes, I remember thinking how who heavy, how who heavy, one or both of them were when I found them in. My idea was fun was to go to Birmingham Library. Um, which I only did it, I think, twice. But it was it was like because uh, in the middle of nowhere to leaf through Radio Times is that's when I found gold, like a cast list for a production of the Three Musketeers that had some Doctor Who actors in it. 
that was to me as it that was more exciting than football <laughs> oh dear this is why i've ended up at one o'clock in the morning in the middle of plague-ridden Great Britain as this <laughs> civil war looks like it's going to break out and everyone, you know, and the, and the world is a is a pretty sad place to behold. I get my fun by absorbing myself in a Doctor Who story that, I, that, that, that the, uh, the details of which are not hugely familiar because I have to say I've, I've watched the recons and I've listened to the soundtracks but certainly far less often than than i would watch moving pictures and episodes um and that because it's harder um, and because somebody's got my whoever you are if you're watching this and you've you've got my cd of evil of the daleks uh which just means that somebody that's that's another example of evil of the daleks abandoning me <laughs> God, it'd be just my luck if I was if I found it. <laughs> I found it a car boot, so it had melted my hand. Now, this funny. I I nominated the argument in the previous episode, but actually, the one covered in that nostalgia article. It's it's this one. It's the bit where he calls him callous, and he says we're finished, doesn't he? So so in, in fact, I've done. I've, I I I think I sort of nominated the one in episode three, which Simon did as well. So. It was it was a serendipitous moment because I think I'd sort of meant this one really because he says we're finished. I mean that's a real that's a real moment for the Doctor and his companion, especially jolly old Jamie, um, with you know with with whom he's just established that rapport. You know when they when you see them sort of galloping around uh, Gatwick Airport, suddenly free of Ben and Polly, and they become this sort of double act. Um, oh yes, that. Oh, of course this is where the story having been a sort of victorian melodrama with uh, with those characters we just got rid of this is where it takes a really offbeat turn and i mean i never played trains i talk about the daleks playing trains i didn't really know what that was but it's just going choo choo but but the, these these daleks suddenly being weird you know it's suddenly the it's a great cliffhanger isn't it because it's not the it's not the doctor in danger it's the I think the modern parlance is WTF is is going on, um, and 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 this rather guff idea about human factor, Dalek factor, I forgive it because it gives us the Daleks as we've never seen them before, uh, and the and the Daleks done badly can be rather boring. We all know the cliche of act I mean, you know the the cliche of the Daleks. Um, when they're used unimaginatively, but when they surprise you, that's I love that the Doctor on the Dalek, and and at first is it, it are they being menacing? No, they're playing a game, and they're they're playing a game. It's a game. I love that. Isn't that glorious? It's so, it's slightly surreal and slightly weird. That is such an unusual cliffhanger. But it's the story going, we are taking you to places we've never been before. This is the Daleks as you've never seen them before. What's going on? Uh, I adore that. I think that is so clever and weird and offbeat and strange and, and, and 
I think I use the word beguiling too much, but I'm beguiled by it. I'm charmed by it, but I'm slightly discombobulated and off-put by it as well. It's rather an amusing game. And I love the fact that the cliffhanger... It's, there's no cliffhanger like that. that. That is unlike anything, I think, in the whole of Doctor Who. Uh, so I've, I've chosen my moment. It's that seek, it's that cliffhanger. And, and maybe you know, the, the, the playing of the trains, that cliffhanger. It's, it's a great moment of, of, of Doctor Who. Uh, I, I challenge Simon to choose something better than that. Okay. Slight cut there because there was a technical glitch. Uh, I haven't been cheating, I promise. So, uh, what has Simon chosen? I defy him to have chosen something uh, that wasn't a cliffhanger. Let's see. The thing about episode five is the ending. Um, again, we get this argument between Jamie and the Doctor. Again, Jamie's saying he can't trust the Doctor and doesn't even know who he is. And that's big, serious stuff. But it then flips because the Daleks burst in and they want to play trains. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I said the same, except I used the words offbeat and beguiling, which I overuse as much as the word uh, uh, verisimilitude, uh, which I, I've been conscious to try and avoid using. And I've just played that joker. Uh, so I think I should have a, I should maybe get fined every time I say offbeat or beguiling uh, or robust. They seem to be my words at the moment. I shall try to um, eclecticise my verbal palette. Um, so that's pretty good hit rate for me. Uh, having had the argument in episode three, even though I kind of partially mistook it for that argument. Cliffhanger. And that's, we've ridden out the sort of slightly choppier waters, I would say, of the middle instalments of Evil of the Daleks. We're about to go to Scaro. The, the, the Dalekanium's about to hit the fan. Uh, not, not, not this one. Well, it might. Let's see. Uh, next time. But uh, for now, I hope you're enjoying this, uh, this podcast. Rather an amusing little podcast. I hope. I think you'll find. 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 John Bailey's character in Vote, Vote, Vote for Nigel Barton is called Jack Hay, not Jack May. Close, but no cigar. And indeed, in Doctor Who A Celebration, the quote accompanying Peter Davison is A broken clock keeps better time than you. And that is said to him by Tegan, so an unusual choice. Oh yeah, and the Napoleon Boney quote is of course from Day of the Daleks, a story I did about a week before recording this. So yeah, well done memory. Okay, I'm not playing this time, well, apart from the episode. So press play on Evil of the Daleks, episode 6. In three, two, one. Now then, this will mean nothing to you, those of you who are listening, <coughs> but those of you who are viewing may go, hang on, he's got changed, and he looks a, a bit older. No, I mean, hopefully I don't. Um, it's a... And, and episode seven will be back to the night that I did Evil of the Daleks. I would like to say... There was a technical problem. 
with my recording of episode six of Evil of the Daleks, which starts with the game of trains, which I think is brilliant. Uh, it is a rather amusing little game. Unfortunately, the commentary when I listened back to it was neither amusing nor informative. It, I have a habit, I think, and we'll watch this as a verbal tick. If I say, yeah, and that's interesting because that means I'm buying myself a bit of time to say something. And in the case of episode six, to say something that wasn't remotely interesting at all, quite a lot. So when I was reviewing it for technical reasons, largely, because I don't like listening to the sound of my own voice, although this may sound uh, contrary to what this whole exercise is about. Uh, but my own voice to me sounds like nails on a blackboard scratching out the words you sound like a git um but that's one thing but actually i kept saying mm, this is really interesting and then saying the least interesting things possible for 25 minutes so i've done the unprecedented thing unprecedented this is only the fifth story i've done of re-recording this episode if it's, doctor who has a history of re-recording things that haven't worked very well so that's a bit of context uh, to why uh, for the video I look a bit different. The, the listener would be uh, completely unaware, um, but you'd have been aware of the original episode six. It was really tedious. Unlike episode six of Evil of the Daleks, which starts brilliantly. Um, and I love this and I've talked through it and it's a shame. Um, but uh, hopefully uh, that that giving you that context was important uh, and we can catch up now because this is the Daleks playing trains this is an absolutely brilliant idea these alpha beta omega well one it gives us a brilliant anecdote from Roy Skelton that he often trotted out which was when he was a beta uh, he had a line to say something like alpha what is happening or or some such uh, uh, and instead he said, what's it all about, Alpha? Um, which uh, apparently made some people laugh and some people cross. Um, but um, depending on how, how he was framing the anecdote. But uh, it's a great story and a good line and a good gag. The idea that the Daleks, who have been played by school kids in the playground... Generations of school kids in the playground. The idea of giving that to the Daleks to do is a wonderful, grotesque parody of the influence that they had had on children. And now the very children that they have influenced um, uh, 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 dictate the way that these humanised, infantilized Daleks speak, which I think is really creepy. It's a really interesting idea. Apparently Terry Nation didn't like the idea at all. He saw them as cold, purely evil creatures of menace. But a great way to make that uh, really spooky and really creepy is to upend it. It's to turn it on its head. The gas mask child is another, a sort of, you know, a, a parody of, of childhood is a terrifying thing because we equate childhood with innocence and we equate the Daleks with, you know, cold extermination. So to hear them speaking in that childish way is quite charming. But then when you think about it, it's very unnerving. 
and, and I'm, I like Terry Nation. I like his sort of comic strippy sort of approach to writing that he does, and he does sort of these great epic space adventure type things. But I think David Whittaker really knew how to do really interesting things with the Daleks. And Terry Nation, dare I say it, if he didn't like uh, the evil of the Daleks, Daleks, the humanized Daleks, I think he... And it's possible to create something and then to get it wrong. I think he misunderstood an important element of his creations. And none of us are immune to that. I've run a comedy club for 23 years. I, I resisted some of the the, the 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 booking policies of it when, when some other people started to help me with it. work there. And actually, I, I had to eventually realise that I was wrong and that these things that were being done actually gave it a new lease of life and helped with its longevity. So just because you come up with something doesn't mean you necessarily know the, you know, the best way to handle it. That's all I would say when it seems counterintuitive to say the man who created the Daleks perhaps didn't always get what, what worked best about them. I think, I think David Whittaker, what he does with the Daleks makes them much more interesting. They're so cunning in power of the Daleks. And then here... He, he takes everything that we know about them uh, and well for certainly these three Daleks and he has them playing trains which I mean I don't think I ever played trains but it's obviously it's a it's a sort of playground game and that's a wonderful thing to do this is yeah um Maxtable has some odd moments in this episode that I'm not sure I've quite got my head around uh Oh, the other thing that I've been able to do be because I've revisited this, I do like the dynamic between these two characters. They they both go on a bit of a journey. I th I th I think Maxtable might go on a journey to Hamville, but I don't know. Uh, uh, Goring was a good actor, um, and I think he he gives it all he can. Uh, and actually, you know, Maxtable is absurd. He thinks you can turn base metal into gold. Um, and that, that the Daleks will help him with that. Um, and there's this lovely wounded dignity to John Bailey's... Uh, John Bailey's waterfield. Oh, and they have a bit of a scrap. Oh, yes, he shouts... He shouts murder a lot, I seem to recall. I, I wonder what this scene would have looked like. I've no idea. Um... But what I didn't talk about throughout the whole of the uh, the, the commentary was I, I alluded to the fact that this was repeated, but I never mentioned that when this was repeated after episode one of The Wheel in Space, he's got scary eyes. Um, uh, there's, there's a voiceover in episode one. So the version that I heard, the soundtrack I had, was um, I, I'm talking through Maxtable going a bit bonkers here. Uh, it yeah, he was a good enough actor to get away with it. He was also a, a, a rich enough actor to have um, given it quite a lot, and it does sound like he's giving it quite a lot. He shouts murder, murder, murder quite a lot, and then he shouts doctor, doctor, doctor quite a lot. But he has got a nice travelling bag. Um, it's an old medical uh, medical uh, leather case. I like that. Um, 
so even of the Daleks episode one, the one that I had the soundtrack is is the one with the voiceover from uh, Patrick Troughton and Wendy Padbury. So she says something like, you know, so what are these Dalek things? And he goes, oh well, they don't come into it yet because of course he says, I'll you know I, I'll weave at the end of Wheel in Space says I'm going to weave this into a story for you. So uh, <laughs> and I think I mentioned before that yes, the uh, the idea that his life is a series of of television adventures on episode one of my holiday uh, i i enjoyed some sightseeing but just before the commercial break uh, of my meal um <laughs> um but so it's, it's weaved into the continuity the, the the repeat is not just you know it's not just at the end of wheel in space that he goes here's a clip from even the daleks and and then it's just on telly next week actually the following week they went to the effort of having a voiceover from Troughton and Wendy Padbury to weave it into the narrative, you know, at the end of Wheel in Space uh, and, and to act as a segue between that and, and Dominators, which starts with Zoe going, oh, I don't like them Daleks. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, that's a really unusual thing. It's, it's sort of like, it's a bit like the, 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 you could have a, quip, a clip show now where a, a, an episode of a series will go, do you remember when we did that thing? And then there's a five minute clip of them doing that thing, which was just a previous episode. Well, this, we had a seven week story and quite right too. It's glorious. Um, so yes, the verbal tick we need to look for for me as well as saying verisimilitude and beguiled. Uh, is that if I go, yeah, it's interesting because um, that means I don't really think it's interesting. I'm just trying to think of something interesting to say, uh, which is odd because this is obviously this is, you know, this is the explosion of the house. This is a massive moment. You know, this is where we've spent a story's worth, really, of adventure with Terrell and Ruth and uh, and Molly, but in, in the house. Uh, so the idea that we've blown the house up, uh, it's still there. That's a lovely restaurant. Um and are moving on to the next part of the adventure feels, you know, suitably epic, um, especially as this takes us to the planet Scaro for the first time since... Oh, she's lovely, isn't she? Since, um, since the first story. So I think if you were a young viewer of Doctor Who, you know, this really felt like it was a pretty important development um and i think and again chris chris thompson's design because that's the other thing i didn't really talk about enough in episode one is that it's Troughton and jamie in the swinging 60s it's you know it's it's uh, it's a, a, an unusual uh an unusual mix because not much of this story is set in the 60s that that episode one is a thing to be cherished actually Troughton and jamie in the coffee bar with the music that will have been in itself quite unusual i know the faceless ones is in the 60s but it's in a but it's in an airport so that's the that's the hook um uh, so so this is this is really an epic but unlike the chase or or the keys of marinus you know where there's a sort of lot of changes of location they're, you know, they're sort of quite cursory and broadly drawn sort of episodic interludes. Whereas this, this really feels like they start in one place and there's a mystery and then they go back in time and it feels like it's going to be this period drum with the Daleks, you know, oddly out of place. And then they start doing this oddly out of place thing. I still, the idea of the Daleks as, as, as children is, I think is gorgeous. But then 
you know, that adventure is left behind and the Daleks sort of leave everyone for dead. They want to blow the house up. But we escape with them and come to Scaro, where we first met them, where we haven't been since uh, since their first adventure. Also a seven-parter. I do like Je Kemmel and Victoria have a lovely uh, have a lovely relationship. I think they're very sweet. Oh, and the model work, yeah. We've got tantalising bits of this this model work. Uh, oh, and yes, there's quite a lot of it uh, in caves on the in this and this or on the the cliff face on the uh, the edge of the city, which you don't really we don't really remember because we remember the the bits in the house. We remember the bits in the Dalek city. It takes quite a lot of time to get there. And what's worth talking about and what what I. That the only bit where I, I think I said anything of much consequence on the first take of this um, was talking about the Emperor Dalek. Where I, and what I'm going to do is at the end. So, so to prove that this isn't me cheating, so that I can choose a different favourite thing, I'm going to go back in time at the end of this and go back to the original recording, so you can you can see and hear what I chose the first time I did it. So I'm not revisiting this in order to choose something else. I love the image of Maxtable with his top hat, with his leather medical bag, with that long coat, looking every inch the sort of Victorian gentleman in a space corridor. Between two Daleks. Were they mocking him then? Going right, right. And of course, this is because he's, you know, he's a big actor and a big character. The fact that they're completely unflustered by him, and in fact, quite, were they quite mocking of him then? And quite bullying of him. This is, you know, so you, on the one hand, we've got the childish Daleks, but on the other hand, they are cruel, they are evil. And none more so than, 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 than in the way that they treat their, I mean, obviously foolish um, ally. But uh, they're not phased by them at all. There's no, uh, you know, they can use guile, but when they don't need to, they can just be pretty harsh. Was that what, I need to check that that's what he was doing when he was saying you have no, right, right. I'd not forgotten they'd done that. That's really unlike what you what we what we see Daleks do normally? I almost want to rewind that and do that again. <laughs> uh, that is the difficult thing with this is because I've got to keep it interesting by keeping gab 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 gab. It means I do run the risk of missing bits, and I'm I'm having to use my prior knowledge of these adventures uh, as as I talk through them. Oh, and because this this has been recorded after I've released some of my first ones and and too much information my you know rather fastidious history of episodes of doctor who which take a lot of research and putting together these tracks are i come into the story with what i got in my head and what my friend has said about them and that's it uh so for better or worse because otherwise i would just spend all of my time uh, revising doctor who and i've you know i've got to earn a living uh i've got to walk my dog um, but yes, the, the interesting, ah, interesting alert, but this is interesting. 
there's a thing we don't know or do we this may have been cleared up um i meant to look at gavin rymel's uh website to give you the address i might put it as a as a subtitle and and maybe as a as a as a post credits thing on the on the audio uh, to direct you because he's done so much research about Daleks and I think there's something about Dalek irises in is it this episode where you see a black iris in the dark oh there's one where you see a black up but this is a recreation black iris in a Dalek for the first time but as I say that's that's all Gavin's area but we've discussed Gavin and I whether the Emperor Dalek is in the studio Roger Bunce who was one of the cameramen on Evil of the Daleks uh, the CGI recreations of the Dalek City in this reconstruction are great uh, and I love that set anyway so they've got good stuff to work from whether the Emperor Dalek who we see at the oh and there's another Maxtable with his, his, his legs uh, crossed sitting on the floor that's a really spooky image bathed in the light like uh, bathed in a pool of light that's a really spooky look and again it's we think of this as a sort of battle, battle-hewn epic, but actually it's got some really strange that that mixture of the historical and the futuristic is a is a clash that is unusual. And it's it is that great Doctor Who thing. Never mind the Yeti on Yeti on your Lou in Tooting Beckett's the Yeti on your Victorian Lou in 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 Tooting Beck is even better. Um, but but. Roger Bunce, the cameraman, says that they were, he was disappointed as a studio cameraman. Oh, that's great as well. The Dalek coming out of the darkness. Again, this is just a reconstruction I'm watching, but they've done such good work on it. Um, the em- Emperor Dalek. I can't see anything. That's really upsetting and unsettling. Um, the, the Emperor Dalek, according to Roger Bunch, they were... Oh, yes, that's an off... off I will get to this point about the Emperor Dalek, but I keep being interested in what's going on, which is good because uh, the previous take of this, I just said, um, a lot and watched. Uh, believe me, if you think I'm I'm taking a long time to get to the point, I, I didn't get to a point last time, I don't think, or it took me 22 minutes. Um, but yes, a lot of this happens off screen. So Maxtable's just gone off into the darkness. They use darkness really well with this. So we heard all that screaming and stuff, and Maxtable was off off and now victoria's off it's she's not in darkness but she's off camera so they're using they're using what we can hear um but not see and that's always terribly scary because your imagination does the work it's a very nice trick of scripting and direction that but listen roger bunce the cameraman said that they were disappointed a studio cameraman because remember studio cameraman would not have been at the film studios in ealing um that the Emperor Dalek set was not in the studio. It was, it was, according to Roger, just at Ealing. Uh, and if you look at the telesnaps, there's no telesnaps of the Emperor in episode six. So you can't, because sometimes you can tell from the quality of a telesnap if it's if it's filmed material or if it's the studio. Not always, but you can. There is a there is sometimes a, dis- a difference in quality. You can tell. Uh, but we've got no shot of the Emperor from episode six. And apparently that starts in darkness and the light blinks on to reveal. That will have been the most amazing thing in Doctor Who ever. I uh, wish we could see that. Um, and if we could, it might clear up whether the Dalek... Uh, it's less important, but it's a nice thing to think about as to whether the Dalek Emperor is just on film or not. Now, 
Gavin suggested to me that um, there's a publicity shot of Victoria, Deborah Watling, in front of the emperor where his hosiery is differently placed. The, the sort of pipes and things coming out of it is differently placed from how it is in the in the cine footage that we have of the Ealing Film Studios. So that's a suggestion that there's a different there's a different set of the emperor that is in the studio that didn't quite marry with the film. But I've also read that the Victoria photo shoot took place at Ealing, although uh, Gavin suggested, I think it was Gavin, or somebody suggested that, because that, I know Simon Gurry's look, looked into this as well, there's a suggestion that Deborah Watling wasn't at Ealing at the same time the Empress stuff was filmed. Well, she might not have been filming, but there's no reason she might not have been separately called for a photo call. I don't know. There's enough doubt. It it may have been solved now definitively, but last time I looked and thought about it, uh, there was enough of an element of doubt that we've got another sort of little Doctor Who mystery to solve. Is the Emperor Dalek in the studio? That brilliant, big, amazing set, or was it just used in, in film sequences? Um, and the fact that they went to all that trouble to build this amazing prop... Uh, that is actually, you know, in 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 really in one episode, um, and of course there were different props built as well because they blow one up, which is a lighter weight balsa wood one. So then there's the element of well, what you know, what were the pipes on that different to the pipes? So we have different emperors, we have different filming days. They they went back and refilmed extra stuff. So there's enough mystery there. Look, there he is. And he's got a great voice as well. It's the slightly more booming voice. Now, on this recon, we don't get the lights blinking on, but I believe, and he's got those flashing lights along his crown, I think you saw those first, and then the lights came on. We meet at last. I wondered if we ever would. And I just think, I mean, I still, I would love to see this. Um, and, of course, this this... This ties in with what I was talking about with episode one of of the Doctor doing all his deduction to actually lead him into a trap. He's been working on the whole human factor thing and the whole Dalek factor thing, this nebulous sciencey thing. And he's gone, aha, but I've got these Daleks. I've given them the human factor. I've I've done what you wanted me to do, but I've double crossed you. Because I've beaten you and I don't care what you do to me now. That's the second Doctor. Absolutely. I, I've done it and I'm. you're probably going to do something. And I don't care. Sort of childish. It's obtuse. It's intelligent. It's calculating. But it's also got this weird sort of innocence about the way it is phrased and delivered. This childlike thing. But actually what has happened is the Daleks have the last laugh as far as episode six is concerned. Because... The human factor shows us what the Dalek factor. This is the confident swagger about the science, science that doesn't really mean anything. Human factor and Dalek factor. But the consequence is that your discovery, Doctor, is going to enable us to do the thing that we want to do. So you're partly responsible for this nebulous thing. Uh, is... Uh, Oh, and there's there's the light blinking on the TARDIS. Oh, maybe it was the light blinking on the TARDIS. I may be wrong there. Um, but maybe a lot of things are in darkness and the light comes on. There's a lot of light and dark. 
Uh, and that's the first time we've seen the TARDIS since episode one as well. So it really feels like an epic sort of coming together. And that, oh, and I know, and I'm going to sort of slightly spoilerize the ending because I scrabble for things to choose for episode seven, which, you know, in, in, in terms of chronologically, I haven't done yet, but in real life I have, because this is a re-record of episode six, um, is that I don't choose Dudley Simpson's music. And Dudley Simpson does great work throughout most of D Doctor Who, but I don't, I'm not sure his music's ever one of the best things about the story. He's almost, too, too, it's like good lighting in the theatre. It's so good you almost don't notice it. His score for this is epic and discordant and this perversion of the Doctor Who theme that has the sense of, uh, you know, encroaching doom about it, but also grandeur. And it's a beautiful score. Um, and I don't choose it. Uh, and I don't choose it for episode six either, because as I said, I was not going to cheat. I'm going to go back to the past where I did my original, very boring, quiet at the back. God, if, if that one was boring, if, 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 judging by this one, if that one was boring, it must be really awful. Uh, look, I wanted to do you a better one than I did. So I've done it again. Uh, and at least I... Oh, and the other thing was, I was chomping on a naked bar. Oh, I've got to be careful how I phrase that for the because because which which was fine for the video but for the audio it sounded awful because just just doing that and you know, on the video it looked fine i was chomping on a naked bar you've got to watch the grammar there as well because obviously if i if i was chomping naked on a bar that would have been fine for the audio but awful for the video but uh, it sounded so not only was i being boring i was being boring whilst eating something and it's like i mean could have been doing anything i could have been noshing off a hamster from from what it sounded like i wasn't um so it was slightly ignorant in the fact that i was chomping away and also it, it wasn't very good so anyway i hope that was better uh, certainly i don't think was worse uh but now we're going to go back in time to to the original track that i recorded to prove that i'm not cheating and to show you what i originally chose and would still choose with honourable mention to Dudley Simpson um, as my favourite thing. So uh, by the power of static electricity, I'm going to go into a cupboard over there and travel back in time. My best thing in episode six is the Doctor meeting the Emperor Dalek on Scaro. I wondered if we ever would, says the Doctor, as if it... This, it I wonder if we ever would, says the Doctor, as if it's been on his mind for a while. And I wonder how the Doctor even knows that there is a Dalek Emperor. Has he been reading the comic strips in TV Century 21? <laughs> My best thing in episode seven. <laughs> well, we'll we have to wait for episode seven. Um, I'm doing well. This is good. I think I've got three out of six. So if I get... What Simon chooses for episode seven, I've I've won, and what what does that mean? Well, the rules are, are are about as sort of solid and set in stone as the whole idea about Dalek slash human factor. The science of the rules is not entirely uh, 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 fully formed, and what's at stake isn't entirely clear. But it's nonetheless all terribly exciting. Uh, I should be going to bed, but I, I can't bail out now. So this is the end of this episode. OK, before we embark on episode seven of Evil of the Daleks, 
I'd just like to emphasise that there's a website I talk about throughout this commentary uh, mentioning the good work done on it by Gavin Rymill. Uh, Gavin has asked me to point out, quite rightly, uh, that although he did a lot of work on it, the site was set up and much of the work, including some mentioned in these episode commentaries that I've done, was done by John Green. So apologies to John. I ramble off the top of my head rather than research these commentaries, so it leads to the odd oversight of this nature. And I'm more than happy to set the record straight and to point you in the direction of John Green and Gavin Rymel's website, which is called Dalek 6388 and can be found at dalek6388.co.uk. Welcome, everybody. It's... uh been seven episodes for you it's been one long night for me i've done it all in a night i wasn't sure i planned to but it does give it a feeling of it being a an epic like watching a big old movie but of course i could have watched it over the course of two months like it was intended to be done anyway before we reach the final end we've got the final 25 minutes of evil of the daleks episode seven Press play now. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Slick as you like. <laughs> I mean, I could cheat. There's no point. <laughs> um, right. Well, this feels like... It does feel like the end of an epic. And, it's, of course, it's the end of the season as well. So Doctor Who is really building up. Uh, you know, the first season ended with the Reign of Terror, didn't it? I suppose the first block ended with Dalek Invasion of Earth, so that was a bit of a bang. But, uh... So, yes, the Dar the TARDIS. It's such an extraordinary prop, that, that Emperor. And thanks to Tony Cornell, who was the technician who took all that uh, stuff at Ealing also did did some of the filming that did the did the the, 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 the city filming at Fury from the Deep as well that means we've got got some behind the scenes footage of that as well how glorious that we have that it's a thing of majesty that Emperor Dalek hats off to Chris Thompson um, who yeah who'd been a design assistant because you can see in that early years book his name's on the the, the the design sheets. He was the draftsman on some of the, the Raymond Cusick stuff. But this is his only Doctor Who, but what I want to do. Jamie Jamie has got Kennedy's jumper. But what's that all about? <laughs> How bizarre. <laughs> I suppose it's a Jacobite thing to do to go around plundering corpses. <laughs> is that what he did? And I don't mean just Jacobites. I mean people in times of, you know, those sorts of battles, didn't they? After the battle was done, people you'd go around, you know, get, getting things off dead bodies. Uh, Jamie really means business. Uh, there were yeah. So of course we're at the the dawn of a classic Tardis crew of the Doctor, Jamie, and Victoria. There's a lot of, from these telesnaps, there are a lot of 
high angle shots, which uh, which do add a certain you know great visual. I mean, I, I mean, I, I do trust Derek Martinez. All of his Doctor Who stuff looks really good. I did meet him once at a, con a convention, but only you know I got him to sign a book. Uh, he was uh, he was. We did try to get him involved in the DVDs. He was still alive when we were doing many of them, uh, but he was too poorly, sadly. Um, now, of course, in the great scheme of things, it's just sad that somebody was poorly in old age. Not that we didn't get, you know, didn't get their memories of Doctor Who. Uh, but he's a, he's a yeah, very good director. He's he's great. The Doctor, the second. I do love the second Doctor. I w I would say that Troughton is probably, probably my favourite Doctor. I just think it's such a, an interesting, characterisation, that's quite unlike anything else. I don't know anybody like, the second Doctor, and yet I totally believe in him, and yet, it, I I don't know how you arrive at that characterisation, uh, and it, it, you know it's gen. It's genuine eccentricity. It's never forced, but also, I think it's because his skill with comedy is equaled by his skill with drama. He is—he is a man of great gravitas, and he projects a sort of searing, busy intelligence, and also a sort of absent-minded, childlike. It's the fact that he's a sort of innocent, and yet he's a—he's quite dark. Uh, I'm annoyed I talked over the bit earlier in in one of the earlier episodes where he, I've mentioned it before, where he uh, he sort of acknowledges to Waterfield that yeah I might I might end a race. Oh, you know. He know he knows the gravitas of what he's doing. Credit to Dudley Simpson too. The score knows that this is big stuff. Uh, And there's an echo, isn't there? There's, I mean, it's not just the emperor's voice, but it's the, it's it's the sense of it's the sense of scale within the, the must be the set, I guess. Um, and seeing the Daleks, I just must have, as as to be a seven year old in, I mean, I know I, I know I shouldn't covet. I remember. It's a terrible... I remember when the actor Gary Holton from uh, Fuida Zane Pet died very young during the filming of a series, and it was it was headline news. And I remember working out that, because it said how old he was, I worked out when he was born, and I worked out that he would have been old enough to see most of the Doctor Whos that I wasn't born to see. And I, even though I, I was sad that he died, I was sort of envious of him that he'd been born at a time which meant that he could see all of these classics that I would never see. <laughs> I mean, Doctor Who was my life. Doctor Who was what I thought about all of the time. I, I, I wonder if it still is. What am I doing now? It's three o'clock in the morning. I should be in bed. I've, I've got a dog. I've got a lovely partner. I've got, I've got so much to do around the house. I've got some. I've got to earn a living, but I, I feel the need to connect and to reinvigorate my connection with Doc 2. And I've never done this before. I've, I've watched them all in order, written a book about watching them all in order. 
I, I, I worry about Maxtable's transformation at this point. He's Marius Goring has already um, had a fairly healthy portion of the scenery, and and that's before he goes through the Dalek Dalek Arch. Uh, uh, and if he had mad eyes before, he's got mad Dalek here eyes afterwards um the music's loving it though isn't it it's really chilling music and 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 actually that reveal of him with his scary dalek face done properly i i i i think might might well have but could could have been really unsettling it could also have been slightly comical as is it Spinal Tap says, there's a fine line between clever and stupid. Um, and I think I worry that he does that. I don't know why I get that impression. I, I just worry that when he's a Dalek, he does that. But I'm sure he doesn't. I might have just made that up. I just, I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> I love this Emperor. And the, and the, and the, sort of hose things hanging off the ceiling that give it a sort of sprawling it's like it's a it's got its own sort of spider's web into the very fabric of the building yeah he's a he's a dalek like maxtable yeah this dudley simpson is 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 doing great work here again somebody mark Ayres was doing this he'd be able to describe what this what this music was, but would he know which Three Musketeers Gary Watson was in? No. Um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, that's that's quite arch, isn't it? He's. He's been through a Dalek arch, so now he's an arch Dalek. I, I suppose it's, 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 that's perfectly acceptable. It's quite, it's actually quite spooky though. I'm, I'm worrying about the comical because I worry because I'm a Doctor Who fan. But actually, this, this could be really, because it's quite dehumanising, isn't it? He's dehumanised. He's Dalekized. He's got the Dalek factor. Uh, which, you know, and that's and that's the thing about the Daleks, isn't it? It's the, it's that they take away our, 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 our humanity, our, our, our subtlety. Um, this is what interests me when, when, when we look at some of the arguments that people have about Doctor Who and, and like, like, you know, whether it was politically correct i hate that phrase but for want of a better one uh, in the past and 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 how we we can loftily judge it through the prism of today uh, and i and i certainly think it's 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 worth being aware of uh, the things that make us uncomfortable as a modern viewer but um but but then when i then when anyone tries to sort of introduce the other side of that argument or to add some nuance to it there's some very people who believe they're very good people who who get get very cross because they're on the side of 
righteousness and you if you but of course the dark the Daleks teach us is that the ones you have got to worry about are the ones that are convinced they're right. I hope I'm right. I'm a liberal kind of guy, um, but I, I acknowledge that liberalism has inherent contradictions within it. Uh, and today's liberalism uh, uh, can be wielded quite illiberally. Um, and, and as I say, some of the people that, that, that think they're the best of us are so convinced of their own righteousness that they're actually closer to the Daleks because they, they know they're right. I just hope I am. Especially about the Dalek Emperor being uh, uh, on film and not in the studio because I don't like being... <laughs> but I'm I'm always... Pro I think it's, it's healthy to always... I've always assumed I'm wrong. And you're not disappointed when somebody goes, I think you'll find... <laughs> But of course, the viewer here is, uh, you know, feels that they're, they're part of an epic. So that the, the idea that the Doctor, you know, might have been Dalekized, that's about as bad as it gets. Of course, it's a story of deceit and manipulation and the Doctor is lying again. Uh, I hadn't quite realised that. I haven't, I've not thought of it in this way at all until now. That's the beauty about revisiting Doctor over and over again. There's always something new to see or to imagine or to ponder on. This this is a story of a series of manipulations, uh, which I think is really interesting. It's 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 much more of a sort of game of chess in a way, although it's sort of game of chess where you just lie to each other. Did you just move pawn to queen four? No, I moved rook to the... Did you? Yeah. Um, And of course, the Doctor has to ask Jamie to trust him. And Jamie's lost his trust in the Doctor twice already. So that's brilliant. And I hadn't realised that either. So that's that's sort of the ultimate test of their friendship, is that after all they've been through, uh, the Doctor's now saying, go through this arch that's 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 uh, turned Max to Bull into a, an eccentric performance. And of course, poor old wretched Waterfield. Uh, he's got his daughter back, um, but of course, we knew, you know Vic, Vic, we always knew of Victoria when you know introduced her as a companion. She was the orphan Victoria, so he was always doomed. Uh, and, and yeah, of course, the, yeah, a Dalek question a thing? No, there's no questioning. Well, that's just a, that's. And, the, and we've got the uh, we've got the sound effect, the dum dum, boom 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 boom, Dalek control room sound effect. I love the fact again, it's Doctor, even a sound effect because they've used that sound effect in in Modern Doctor, haven't they? The cloister bell, you know, so something as simple as a sound effect using the same sound effect as the one that I remember from my childhood, just gives me a little little frisson, a little dance of joy, and it's funny. Because I I wasn't a particularly happy child. Doctor Who was um it was my refuge. Um, so the fact that I'm now nostalgic for my childhood, I think it's because I realise I should have enjoyed myself a lot more <laughs> than I did. Because 
if you think childhood's hard, huh, you wait till you become an adult. And I, and I, and I, yeah, I sort of look back and wish I'd enjoyed myself a little bit more and worried a little bit less. Um, uh, but nostalgia is is a really powerful tool. Oh, I wish we could see this. Why why have we got episode two and we haven't got any of the others? What happened to the other episodes that were with that were with episode two? Go on, please be somewhere. I remember when episode two came back because, as I say, it was it was what for me it was one of the ones that came back. It was a completely missing story, um, and there'd been. I mean, I I wasn't part of fandom, but. Um, the episodes that sort of seemed more likely to turn up, but evil just seemed, you know, completely out of question because there weren't any others. There seemed no rhyme. So that so when Evil Two, was Evil Two and Faceless Ones Three, came back at the same time. Uh, and I saw it for the first time at a at a convention. Uh, they put it on the big cinema in the afternoon. And I w watched it. Was absolutely amazed uh, by how good it was um, dizzy dizzy Daleks I love that I love that that's so peculiar I mean isn't it weird it's it's and it's it's so clever because of course the Dalek is played by every child in the playground and suddenly they've taken that that impact that they've had on popular culture uh, uh, and, and made the Daleks sort of imitate the children who play them. I, I'm sure they weren't thinking as loftily as I'm sort of pretentiously throwing it in now, but I do think that's that's a really interesting thing to do. To, uh, oh, and I like, yeah, the, the Daleks I grew up with didn't, didn't scream when they died and didn't have pain. You know, they were much more staccato and you know they were straightforward and they came and they shot and they blew up uh, and, and they do actually sort of s scream with pain quite a lot don't they in the uh in the 60s or which we which i don't associate with them it's a it's a relatively new thing for me although you know i've been used to it for 20 odd years now but uh it's 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 it still sort of almost surprises me when they do it i love this we've got tantalizing glimpses of of Dalek goo and of course the um you know the suggestion of something organic is always a bit exciting with a Dalek because we think of them as you know machine creatures we know there's something inside but when we get a glimpse and it's good enough for a cliffhanger in the in the first story but but yeah the just just a bit of goo and it's suddenly oh do we feel like we've seen a bit of a Dalek um and I and again I sort of think I sort of think we we benefit from only seeing glimpses. I always this our, our tendency now to want to see, I think spoils the idea that we we, we, we for so long we didn't. Uh, I I think picturing what's what what's there is much more exciting. Imagine the size of the mutant inside the emperor. See, we've, so we've got all this beautiful cine film of this brilliant set, and the Dalek battle. This I mean. Oh, to be a seven-year-old in 1967, watching the Daleks fighting each other. Uh, and, and you do not fight in here, all of that. This is, this is amazing. 
Well, of course, what Edward Waterfield does is he saves the Doctor. Oh, doesn't he say something like a good, a good life to save? Actually, on the evidence of the Doctor, this episode, this story. <laughs> but you were always, I think, gonna, gonna, gonna get killed. I think Edward Waterfield. Good life to save. Oh. It is a lovely performance from from John Bailey. Good actor. Uh, also turns up later as Saison in The Horns of Naimon. Uh, and I remember, because I'd remembered that character from the... I remember reading the cast list for The Horns of Naimon and realising that I'd seen uh, an actor from Evil of the Daleks in action uh, in a Doctor Who that I'd watched because I remember the Horns of Nymon first time around. That seemed terribly exciting. I worry about the Louis Marx Daleks. And isn't it Because we don't see the Daleks for another five years after this. Isn't that extraordinary? So if you were eight when this was on, you didn't see the Daleks again till you were 12. That's a lifetime. The idea now that there'd be five years between Dalek appearances. Uh, uh, and actually, I think, and because that, because I, I remember when Remembrance was, and because I saw Destiny, then you didn't see them again till Resurrection. Uh, and then I remember when Remembrance came on; it seemed like they hadn't been there for ages. Because of course, time moves at a different speed when you're a teenager. But it, it seemed like a real event. Oh, this is amazing! That that Emperor Dalek explosion is amazing. I mean, it's a kapow! It's a kablam! Um, yeah, now, of course, the one that blows up is a different prop to the main one, so that could explain the two different sets of wires, which could mean that it wasn't in studio. I don't know, I don't know. I'm just saying it's it's not cut and dried, and it is debatable, and it is interesting. And the debate might well have been solved, but it hasn't in my head. Uh, oh, yes, Yes, this this is a horrible bit. Um, it's, it's kill, 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 kill. So that's the Dalek in Maxtable's head, is it? It's not quite clear what's going on here. And and in the Doctor Who archives of this, I'm sure Maxtable and Kemmel both went over the cliff. I thought that's how Maxtable died, that that him and Kemmel uh, both went off the cliff together. But actually. He doesn't. He goes back to the city. And I'm not sure we see Maxtable die, which is really interesting. We hear him. He has a bit of a rant later on and goes back into the city. But unless he gets killed by a Dalek or you see him walk down a corridor that then blows up, uh, it's again, it's not entirely clear. Uh, I've not seen the script. That's an amazing explosion. There's a lot of pyrotechnics there. Um... And yeah, but and and you, and I th and I think nowadays where the Daleks, you know, sometimes are guests in another story, or they'll 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 crop up to be a peripheral part of the story. Um, I, I I think takes away from them a little bit. Uh, it, it takes away from their headline grabbing that they're that they unless they're wheeled out for a special occasion. That, so. Now, it's possible that something there happens to Maxtable after he's delivered a, 
a lion rule forever. Now, does something fall on him? Does a Dalek kill him? I don't know, because it cuts away to the to the city blowing up and stuff pretty straight after his line. So I, it's not clear what happens to Maxtable. Perhaps he's still there uh, <laughs> to fight another day. But this is such a sort of epic... And I'm not disparaging the, the, the modern Who, which I, I love. I just... I think some the Daleks, if they become part of the furniture, you don't get that frisson of it's a, oh, it's a Dalek story, you know. I actually think, like the Emperor Dalek only really being in this episode of the end of episode six, that if things are rationed, it becomes a bit more special. And and the Daleks were, were, were a big deal when I was a kid. And in, they're only in the Tom Baker era twice, for goodness sake. I mean, this... This sounds amazing, and again, I trust Derek Martinez to have done a done a decent job. But and of course, there's a. I mean, it ends on all of this sort of battley, uh, and but there's supposed to just be a glimmer, isn't there, of uh, of the light within the Emperor? Because Sidney Newman had said, uh, d you know, make it, give us give us hope, just in case. Uh, Ken Tilson forgotten he was a Dalek he's a he's a sensorite and I think a gubbage cone uh, he's never talked of much as a as a as a Dalek operator uh, he's another one that got away I kept meaning to write to him because we didn't get him for the for the sensorites commentary because he lived too far away so I thought oh, I'll write to him so I can complete all the sensorites people and uh, then he died sadly um, Dalek fight directed by timothy coombs so yeah, that's nice that he gets that credit uh, and he's a good director too so uh, again i i do worry about the louis marx daleks and yeah Lu louis marx wrote day of the daleks so that's quite isn't it odd that two people with the well people you know two, the, the name is associated in two different ways with uh with uh, with the daleks uh so uh, my favourite thing about Evil of the Daleks, Episode 7, is the Dalek Civil War. It looks amazing. That model shot of the Dalek blowing up and going into the sky as well. It looks from those tantalising behind-the-scenes clips, which, you know, don't tell us what we would have seen. It could have been filmed really badly, but I don't think so. Uh, I do worry slightly about the Louis Marx Daleks, because they're a different shape. Um, but... It sounds amazing, uh, and and that explosion of the emperor and all of and the emperor is so good. Yeah, please, Dalek Civil War. Uh, that's that's my thing. What's Simon Gerrier's episode seven thing? My best thing in episode seven is the scale of the final end. Brilliantly, designer Chris Thompson built a model and a full set of Scaros, so that there were lots of ways to really go to town on the battle. They had days of filming at Ealing, and then, having already done that, they went back and did some more uh, with a second unit, uh, directed by uh, uh, Timothy Coombe. We know there were Daleks exploding, and bits of blobby creatures inside. We know they had extra time to edit this epic together. together. I mean, we know so much about this big battle at the end. Uh, it's so tantalising. And yet gone. Gosh, how does anyone sleep at night knowing that? And then you want a bonus thing. Oh, so. <laughs> I've forgotten. I want a bonus thing. I want my own rule. I've got my own rules. And oh, 
He put, How does anyone sleep? Well, I'm not sleeping. It's three o'clock in the morning. I'm not sleeping. I do miss. He's right about that battle. And yeah, they did. I forget. They did go back. So there's so much there. Oh, I miss that with every fibre of my being. Isn't that terrible? Uh, why chuck away such a, a story that was good enough to repeat? Anyway, so look, um, I got the same as Simon then. I did last week. I did for episode five. I didn't for episode one. I didn't for episode two. I did for episode three. I didn't for episode four. So it's four three to me at the moment. I I I, I don't I don't know what that means, but I'm certainly doing better than I think I have so far in this process, uh, and better than I expected to do. So now I'm 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 slightly nervous because I've got, I've got. Do I choose one more thing? Or is it that he chooses something and if it ties in with my... And if it's the same as one of my other ones. I don't know. I don't know. It's 4-3 to me. And he's going to choose one more thing. So I'll choose one more thing. And if I choose the same as him, I get a point. And if he chooses the same... If he chooses something I don't choose, he gets a point. And it becomes a rather disappointing tie. I'm never... I'm never... I don't think I've ever won... Or come close to, because, you know, the chance of choosing the same thing. Simon's a writer. But I feel I feel bad because I haven't chosen um, John Bailey's performance as Edward Waterfield, which I think has a has a sort of cracked dignity about it uh, and uh, and really lends you know, our, our, our sort of paternalistic um, view of uh, the paternalism that we feel towards Victoria because she's an orphan, but she's not just an orphan. She's an orphan of a, of a, of a really sad man. <laughs> um, and because it's three o'clock in the morning and I'd love to think of something clever. Um, no, all right. John Bailey as Edward Waterfield, because I think he's great. I bet Simon hasn't chosen that. I bet I've just I've just been standing in the open goal to seal victory at, at the last minute before the final whistle and I've skied it. So my bonus thing about the Evelyn Daleks is something pointed out by clever Alan Barnes in Doctor Magazine. As we know, the production team originally asked Pauline Collins to be their new companion while they were recording the previous story, The Faceless Ones. So... Alan asked, where would her character, Samantha Briggs, have fitted into this story, given it was made very soon after that decision? Well, I think Alan's right that Sam would largely have taken the part played by Molly in the story. But it's fun to listen to the story of the, the evil of the Daleks now and imagine Sam in that role, and then helping rescue Victoria. And that's the image I'd like to leave you with, Toby. Sam Briggs on Scarrow in that hat giving the emperor what for good night so, so yeah so okay it's what <laughs> it's it's what could have happened I, I i like that i mean we could we could we could play that game with anything what what could have happened well it, i mean it, it could be that uh, that uh, um theodore maxwell was played by Lawrence olivier or it could be that every time 
uh, a, a Dalek explodes in episode six, you win a million pounds. We've, we all lived in a, if wishes were horses, Alan Barnes and Simon Guerrier. But um, so I wouldn't. Anyway, anyway, I, yes, um, it is nice to play with. the. Well, Ben and Polly were supposed to be in episode two. Annika Wills and Michael Craze were contracted to to episode two, but then uh, Innes Lloyd, Innes the destroyer Lloyd, who just when he doesn't when he doesn't like a companion, just gets rid of them as soon as possible, halfway through a story, if you like, because uh, uh, they disappear in the faceless ones. I mean, they don't even get to to to, to take part in the bulk of that story but yeah they were supposed to be there in and, and i think in early story linings they were there uh until episode they left in episode two and you go oh, that's unimaginable they essentially leave in episode two of the faceless ones and then just come back for a bit of film um but i'm sure i'll talk about that when somebody nominates the faceless ones which hasn't happened yet that was my first missing story for this i think we made a good fist of it i certainly love it i certainly miss it I would certainly, I haven't got any money, but I would pay good money. I would, what would I do? I would do some form of incantation. I'd do some deal with, I'm not going to attempt for, I was just about to say, I would do a deal with the devil to get it back because I'd suddenly got really spooked by saying that. And I would worry that if it then turned up next week, somehow my soul would have, would have gone down below. So uh, anything supernatural and cabalistic and satanic aside... I would uh I would go to a lot of effort uh in order to save those episodes from destruction or or rescue them from whatever cupboard they might be in in some uh, archival backwater uh yeah maybe one day we can do this again and the pictures will be moving worth hoping for isn't it and on that note perhaps then we can say for evil of the daleks it's potentially not the final end thanks to my guest simon guerrier who typically was one of the first people on board with this podcast slash video cast because He's just enthusiastic and very kind and helpful. And why wasn't I surprised, as I say, was when, when he was one of the first people to uh, send me a package. And what a package it is. Not a coincidence he's chosen Evil of the Daleks because he has written an excellent book about it. It's one of the Black Archive books from Obverse Books. And he's gone into intense and, and certifiable detail uh, as is the style of those excellent books, which I can heartily recommend. From Obverse Books, The Black Archive, number 11 is Simon's Evil of the Daleks. You have been listening to Happy Times and Places, presented by me, Toby Haydoke, and my special guest was Simon Guerrier. Special thanks to this episode's featured patrons Jeff Kaplan, Andy Kitching, Hendrik Korzeniowski, Guy Lambert, Nate Lynch, Sean McAllister, Pip Maidley, Nick Mellish, Russell Parker, Ken Patterson, Monsieur Poirot, Gavin Rymill, Jim Sangster, Paul Shields, Richard Smith, David Spencer, 
Adam Stone, Paul Taylor Greaves, Sidney Trote, Alistair Wallace, Kevin West, John Williams, Sidney Wilson, and Pascal Zierke. The music was by Dave Gates and the podcast artwork by Dylan Patterson. Please remember to subscribe to my YouTube channel and please do rate five stars if you can and review these on whatever podcast platform you get them from. And you can go to patreon.com forward slash Toby where there are exclusives and advanced releases if you choose to be a patron or you can do a one-off payment at ko-fi.com forward slash Toby No obligation, of course, and my immense gratitude to you just for being here in the first place and for listening. Thank you so much. Bye.